Between this squadron and the enemy, there was now nothing but some small patrols. They were separated by an empty space of about 600 yards. The enemy stopped shooting, and that strict, menacing, inaccessible, and elusive line that separates two enemy armies became all the more clearly felt. One step beyond that line, reminiscent of the line separating the living from the dead, and it's the unknown suffering and death. And what is there? Who is there? There beyond this field and the tree and the roof lit by the sun? No one knows, and you would like to know, and you're afraid to cross that line and would like to cross it. And you know that sooner or later you will have to cross it and find out what is there on the other side of the line, as you will inevitably find out what is there on the other side of death. And you're strong, healthy, cheerful, and excited, and surrounded by people just as strong and excitedly animated. So, if he does not think it, every man feels who finds himself within sight of an enemy, and this feeling gives a particular brilliance and joyful sharpness of impression to everything that happens in those moments. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a podcast where we find the biggest book possible to disrupt our lives for as long as possible while trying to pretend that we enjoy it. I think we did enjoy this last one, uh, which was War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a big book. It was on PBS's uh, American Big Reader, whatever it was, which I was kind of shocked by because I think Anna Karenina is better maybe, but we'll come to that. We'll come to all of that because aside from maybe Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, Bill, <laughs> I would say that this is the biggest big book in many definitions that we've read, correct? <laughs> I would agree. Uh, so last year we read, you know, The Worst Journey in the World, which was a 600-page book that was a lot of stuff and was really good. And then we read The Unconsoled, which was a lot of stuff and really good. And then The Stand, which is very long, but not terribly complicated. I mean, it's got some complexity to it, but it's not like a big book in terms right. of scope. And then we read Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, which took over both of our lives for like two straight Just completely, months. Just completely, yeah. It like it like it was like it like colonized my mind, and like and like for months after that too. I still think about it every now and then. Right, I do too. And then this year we read N.K. Jemisin's uh, Broken Earth trilogy, which we mostly enjoyed, but was not again is not nearly as difficult to get through. And then we read uh, The Coast of Utopia, which was actually a little shorter, but we we understood. And then Whitaker Chambers' Witness, which was again had some complexity to it, but we, you know, yeah, we got through it. And then <laughs> right. we read War and Peace, which took forever. It was very complicated and is about everything. It's about all of human existence and the entirety of human knowledge and ethics and philosophy. And it's very long, and I think it's one of the best things I've ever read. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a thing, man. Like, there's a reason people point to it as the... I was actually, I was out at a... I do some of my reading at a, one of the bars I go to around in town, because I know people and they leave me alone and I can get a hamburger. Um, and... I, they just saw I had this huge book I was reading, and my friend walks up and says, what is that, War and Peace? <laughs> <laughs> people just know. I know. It's yep. like the big, it's like the er big book for, and, and you know, some people even talk about like, you know, supposedly this is one of the books that invented 
you know, mo the modern way novels should be written and yada, yada, yada. But that's, it's funny you start there because I actually wanted to ask you before we even get to any of the summary or anything, like, did you have people react to you? Like, how, or, or what were people's reactions when you said like, hey, I'm reading War and Peace right now? <laughs> um, it always provoked a re I mean, some people were like, oh yeah, no, I've heard that's, you know, I mean, I've not done that, but I've heard it's really worth doing. And more than one person said, why are you reading War and Peace? <laughs> <laughs> I had, I, the best reaction I had, so, okay, so, in my library like i've become the like classics guy which is sometimes annoying because i also like you know i read uh patricia mckillop this year and i was just reading madeline lingle the other day you know what i mean like i read broadly we read jimison together right um so sometimes it feels, it feels like an unfair tag to like dismiss joel as like you know snob <laughs> i don't know snobby obscure guy um and what was funny with this book is like I had just gotten to past the point. It was very early on when um, one of the main characters is basically like wrestling with a, dancing with a bear and the other character is hanging out the window drinking. You know, it's just like hysterical scene of like madcap, you know, drunken soldierly. And I was trying to tell someone, I was like, this book is funny. This is a funny book. And I, I had one person who um, agreed with me and everyone else was just they never read it and they just thought it was the craziest thing to say about it. But it's. I just, yeah, there's no way to talk about War and Peace without having to, like, overcome everyone's opinions about what they've heard about it. <laughs> but what I wanted to keep telling people was, like, there's so much, like, dry, almost Jane Austen satire in this. So and, much. Uh, yes. Exactly. Everyone was just, no one believed me. No one believed me, you know? Well, I think the book is also, and we'll talk about this soon. I don't want to get too, but, like, the book is weird in a way that I wasn't expecting, right? Like, I've read other books from this period that, you know, I like Dickens, I like a lot of that stuff, right? But it's it's sort of a, a book where things happen in the book and then it goes up. But this book does some really weird structural stuff and it's part essay, so and half of it's in French. Like, it's just a really weird yeah. book in a way that I was not prepared for when I first picked it up. <laughs> well, so our old, our old friend that we actually read for a different podcast, Isaiah Berlin, who um, had a bunch of essays on different Russian writers uh, collected in a book called Russian Thinkers, um, he has this one line at some point where he kind of quotes, he quotes Brecht or someone who talks about like the problem of classics is always their reputation that as soon as it's given the classic status, it's kind of put into like a musty side of your brain when actually the whole reason it was given a classic status usually is because it was so fresh and startling. Right. Right. Um, and that's definitely my experience with like uh, Moby Dick is kind of the classic one. The other one, people are like, oh, why are you reading that? Like the whale chapters are so horrible. And sometimes they totally are. But um, but I also, yeah, I mean, I remember reading Moby Dick for the first time. All, well, OK, for the second time. I hated it the first time <laughs> when I was in ninth grade. <laughs> um, but for the first time as an adult, I was just totally blown away by the way he's inventing you know, a new way to do a novel. And I thought War and Peace was actually very similar to Moby Dick as far as it has this grand philosophical and historical mission while also telling this really poignant story about a bunch of families um, in Napoleonic Russia. But so, yeah, so it was I, I wish I'd had more reactions to War and Peace. Like in some ways, I feel like my own reputation muted people being like, oh, you're reading War and Peace? Of course you are. You know what I mean? Like it was like, yeah, right, yeah. You, you would do that as opposed to like what they thought about the book, you know? 
But yeah, so I guess so. Um, is there anything else you want to get out? Kind of any other throat clearing you want to get out of the way before we maybe try and <laughs> before I make you try and summarize what we're talking about or what we're gonna talk about? <laughs> no, I think that's most of it. The only way out is through. I think with this book, so we're just I gonna so. we're just gonna do it. I don't think there's a lot more, or, or I think we could do prefatory material for two hours and then then <laughs> it's probably have true a podcast. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the book is War and Peace, written in Russian. Well, mostly, because it's also in French, but we'll deal with that. Uh, and by some Leo German. Tolstoy <laughs> and some German. Uh, and one or two lines of Italian, I think. But anyway, yeah. it's a Russian book written by uh, Leo Tolstoy, published in serialized form from, sorry, 1865 to 1867, and then in a full book, first in 1869, is what I, I believe is correct. It's at least around then. It is broadly about the Napoleonic Wars... Uh, and how they impacted Russia. Uh, Tsar Alexander was one of the main European leaders that was tangled up with Napoleon's whole deal. Um, and so it deals broadly with sort of two military campaigns and then some of the time in between them. Both uh, the, the wars fought mostly in Austria and such in and around, I think it's 1805. And then up to the big war in 1812 when Napoleon invades Russia and then gets... Uh, you know, goes all the way to Moscow and then gets kind of repelled or just kind of slinks away at the end of that. Um, it deals with several families, um, and I think probably the best way to do this is to just talk about, which I, I've done with some of these summaries and seem to have some success, is to talk about <laughs> the characters and just kind of try to refer to the book as a series of personal narratives rather than right. try to start the book in chapter one, this happens, because then, you know, no, we'll be that here all doomed. day. Yeah. Um, so we got a couple different families. Um, the big ones are the Bolkonsky family, the Rostov family, the Bezikov family, and then a small but still important role is played by the Karagin family. Does that sound right to you, Joel? Yeah, I think that's, that's, yeah, that's what I would say yeah. for sure. There are plenty of other people, too. Um, <laughs> there are so many other people. <laughs> the Bolkonsky family, you have... Oh, and by the way, I meant to look up how to pronounce some of these names and didn't, so we'll see how we do here. I'm going to try not to make so many jokes about it as I did during the Coast of Utopia podcast. Boy, um, yeah, same, I guess. I'll just blunder on. <laughs> <laughs> but in the Bolkonsky family, you have Prince Nikolai Andreevich, um, who was who is the very old prince, the patriarch of the family, who is this kind of eccentric mean guy who kind of torments his daughter all the time and constantly gets into fights with his son and who you're always kind of expecting to turn out to be a lovable old like rascal and really never does do that he's pretty much just awful the whole time the whole time the last 30 seconds of his life um his son prince andrei nikolaevich so i would note that um russian naming conventions you have a first name and then a second name which is a patronymic so for men it's you know, dad's name Evich or something like that. And then for women, it's dad's name Ovna or Evna or something like that. Um, I don't pretend to know all the different ways to conjugate that, but that's generally how it works. So Andrei Nikolaevich means Andrei, son of Nikolai. It's not at all confusing that his dad's name is Nikolai Andreevich, <laughs> and then Andrei's eventual son is also Nikolai Andreevich. <laughs> that's not or at that all Or that there's confusing. a character named Nikolai Rostov. <laughs> right. So I assume this is just accurate with history. Like I, I read a... A biography. This is a different place, but the similar kind of naming conventions. I read a biography of uh, Haile Selassie of Ethiopia last year, where there's also just like a limited pool of names, and everyone is first name patronymic, and so it's just legitimately confusing. I think that's probably just what life was like in most places that aren't America in the 21st century, but it yeah, does make probably. the book a bit befuddling at times. Anyway, Prince Andre is one of the book's main characters. Um, for a lot of it, he probably is the main character. Uh, he's a young man. When the book opens, he's married to a a young woman named Elizaveta Karlovna, who is 
the, often called the Little Princess. Um, she's his little pregnant wife who has a, a mustache on her upper lip, which Tolstoy, for whatever reason, just thinks is the most important thing. And he talks about it all the time. <laughs> well, and that it's what I love, too, is like that's part of her beauty, right? Everyone right. thinks it's part of how she's beautiful is that she has too much hair on her lip, which I think is just one of those very minor but very interesting differences, right? I don't know. It was I thought that was hysterical because he's obsessed with it, but actually – Everyone else is obsessed with it too, right? She's like the prettiest, most charming person, partly because she has this cute little mustache. Yeah, it's just a really funny little detail that he really thinks is important. Um, So Prince Andre goes off to war because he doesn't know what to do with his life, basically. He goes off to war in 1805, uh, is presumed killed, comes back just in time to watch his wife die in childbirth, giving birth to their son, Nikolai. Um, Then he spends some years basically in a sort of, a, I guess, an existential funk, you might say, uh, becomes friends with another character named Pierre that we'll talk about more in a minute, goes off, falls in love with one of the Rostov kids. I'll talk about that more in a minute. She tries to have an affair, breaking his heart. He goes back to war in 1812, um, and there he actually dies after having uh, another sort of existential awakening as he becomes more aware of sort of the transience of life and the importance of love which makes him difficult to deal with in his dying moments but it's it's kind of a big tragic arc that i'm obviously being truncating and being snide about because otherwise we'll be here all day and it's um, so sad generally right <laughs> it's a very good arc i want to be clear he's a great character um you have his sister princess maria nikolaevna uh Bolkonsky. she is uh sort of under her dad's thumb as this She's very she's very smart and she's very sort of spiritually aware. She's always described as having moral strength. Um, she's very very religious, and she wants to love her father, but her father is impossible to love, and so she deals with that relationship a lot. And when her father dies, she has a bunch of complex feelings about how she loved her father, but she was also kind of hoping he would get it over with, partly because he was suffering, but also because he just made her life very difficult. Right. She ends up um, falling in love with and marrying one of the Rostov children. Um, her relationship with all the other... She has a good relationship also with Natasha Rostov, who is the one that Andre tried to fall in love with earlier. Um, then we have the Rostov family, which we better get to next since everyone here is marrying everyone else. Um, <laughs> the most important characters are the children. So there's Count Ilya uh, Rostov, who's just kind of a very nice guy who can't keep track of his money. And he has several children, uh, four children, I think. Um, Natalia or Natasha or Natalie, because also everyone has eight names. That's very important. Yeah. Everyone has, you know, Pyotr is also Petya, is also Petrusha. Pierre is actually Pyotr. And so just that's just going to happen. But their daughter, who's mostly Natasha, she uh, at different points falls in love with somebody from each of the other families. Um, yes, that's correct. Uh, and so she's probably <laughs> one of the most important characters in the book. She's younger. Um, she's a little too young for everyone else, which, to be fair, the characters of the book know. Um, and she's kind of full of fire and and passion and she's easily excitable and she's a brilliant singer and a lot of the book is about where is she going to get herself into too much trouble and if so what that's going to look like what is her life going to look like when she's no longer you know 18 and gorgeous is kind of one of the main arcs of the book uh she again starts off pretty early falling in love with prince andrei but then um they have to wait a year before they get married for reasons and she has this kind of affair with one of the Kuragans, who is this rake and terrible person um which ends up breaking off her engagement with andre then later after various uh things she ends up with pierre bezikov which we'll talk about in a moment uh 
The other major Rostov character is their son, Nikolai Rostov. So this, again, is not the same thing as Nikolai Bolkonsky, either of them. <laughs> this is a different Nikolai. Uh, he is a young soldier who is actually our point of view character for a lot of the battles in terms of anybody who actually gets into gets into war rather than just sort of speaking about a, uh, you know, a battle in the distance. He eventually makes a name for himself as a soldier, um, rescues Maria Bolkonsky at one point and ends up marrying her at the very end of the book. But he's he's uh, not as sort of smart or thoughtful as either of the other two major male characters, uh, Pierre or Andre. And so um, his perspective is often very different. He's always getting into scraps and troubles. He almost gets into a duel with Andre at one point, actually. Um, and so he's he's kind of a more... I don't want to call him a troublemaking character because there are other characters that do that better, but I think probably of the main, that's that's him. Yeah. Uh, they have two other kids who are not as important to the plot. Vera, who is difficult and always says the correct thing at the wrong time, is kind of her only <laughs> uh, <laughs> defining characteristic. And their son, Petya, who is their youngest kid, who eventually does join the military during the second campaign and gets killed in a moment of rash overextension. Um the Bezikovs is not really a full family. The important one is Pierre Bezikov. He's one of the most important characters. He's the illegitimate son of Count Kirill Vladimirovich Bezikov, but is legitimized in the old Count's uh, will in fairly early in the book, and thus li- spends most of the book as Count Bezikov. He falls in love with... Uh, well, he doesn't fall in love with... He sort of stumbles into a marriage with the Kiragin daughter and spends much of the rest of the book being in this horrible, loveless marriage where his wife is running off you know, cheating on him with all kinds of people, and he's more or less decided he doesn't care about that. Pierre is a very uh, thoughtful and intelligent man who was always kind of getting super riled up about something. He joins Freemasonry at one point, which we'll have to talk about, and gets very committed into that. (laughs) He gets very committed to all these ideas. He's always having personal revelations about how the world should work and how his place in it. At one point, he thinks he's destined to assassinate Napoleon. Um, He ultimately ends up with Natasha after all Natasha Rostov after all kinds of trials and tribulations with that uh, but he's very good friends with Andre and by the end of the book pretty much everyone likes him even as they acknowledge that he's still got his head in the clouds uh, even towards the end of the book the final family is the Kiragin family and that's you might as well call them the family of like foils or villains that would be a little reductive but you know none of them are good people exactly Actually, one of the first characters we meet in the book is the father, Prince Vasily Sergeyevich Kuragin. Uh, and then he's got three kids, Prince Ippolite, or Hippolyte, uh, who is just kind of comic relief. But then the other two characters are very important. Prince Anatole is um, a dissolute rake who goes around seducing women and getting into trouble. At one point, he decides he's going to seduce Natasha Rostov, which gives the middle part of the book a lot of its sort of driving force. And then there's Princess Elena, who is the one who is married to Pierre for a significant portion of the book. Um, she's beautiful and not terribly smart, but is possessed of a certain low cunning such that she can keep people thinking she's smart and interesting. She's very manipulative. We don't really get a lot of interiority for her. She's very much, along with Prince Anatole, maybe the biggest bad guys in the book, because I think we even get more for Dolokhov that makes him look like more of a person than we do for those two. Would you agree? Um, yeah, so I would say for sure... Um... For sure, Pierre's wife, I think, is not given a lot. I do think Anatole, that's who you said, right? Helene and Anatole? I think it's Anatoly, but Anatoly, yeah, those right. are the characters I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, no, so yeah, I mean, I think so I listened to an audiobook partly, so I, and I don't know how much he got it right. Um, and I, and I, so well, I'm going to also. He probably got it better than I did, so we'll, we'll, well no, no. Whatever. So I was going to, I'm more <laughs> going to say, like, I'm going to say stuff, and it's going to be, you're gonna, everyone should blame it on the guy who read the mod translation, <laughs> uh, which I would, and I, I didn't, I, yeah, anyway, we'll get into the mod translation later. But so, um, Anatole, 
Um, I do think that's that's actually he's one of the people that I would actually point out to like if you ask me why this book's brilliant and why Tolstoy in general is brilliant, it's hard because he's not really like he's not doing any moves that aren't easily explained, but they're almost impossible to replicate at the level of mastery that he does. I feel like so for example, Antol, who definitely is a villain character. Um, Tolstoy just can't leave anything alone, right? So he introduces this rake who's kind of good looking and wants to just seduce women. And then, but he can't help himself, right? Like here is an interesting factor of the world. And Tolstoy, almost like he's like examining, you know, <laughs> like, like rocks in his hand internally. He just keeps turning it around and around and around. And I feel like we, we, so we dip into Anatole's perspective, or at least into a perspective that kind of explains Anatole as being essentially innocent, Right. That like a rake's primary way of being a rake is that he is basically not trying to be a rake. And it's this weird complication that doesn't make his villainy any less one dimensional. You know, like he's still just seducing women and leaving messes behind him. But he's completely oblivious as to what he's doing in some ways. Not completely. But so I don't know. So like I agree with you for the most part. I just think it was one of it's one of the more interesting like points where I feel like Tolstoy's genius shines through because honestly it's it's the kind of cliche of like nothing is simple I and mean, think plenty of things are but like Tolstoy is this is the mass is you know I think he's the world's best at saying there's another corner here you know there's, there's another factor here I can kind of exploit um to help us understand human nature and also this character but I think Helene however you say her name I think she's definitely the most one-dimensional like villain <laughs> I, to be clear I mean like like Joel is saying I do think there's uh more depth to her than you get in most one-dimensional villains. And to some extent, calling her one-dimensional is really just about the fact that we get basically every other major character in the book examined from like 12 different directions with incredible depth in all their facets. Because this book is 1,200 pages long. It's 12, yeah, um, it's so so long. she's probably not one-dimensional if you put her in a 300-page book, right? <laughs> you know no, no, yeah, totally. She, <laughs> she is pretty much static as like someone who is, I mean, kind of a thoughtless, selfish, right? Like, you know, but even that's kind of complicated because... Um, everyone loves her. Everyone who's not Pierre thinks that she is the most interesting, charming, you know, sophisticant, right? Like, um, which is just a way to first Tolstoy to make fun of society, but also it speaks to kind of the complications of, <laughs> I don't know, of being a person in the world, right? That even the simple people create these complicated, like social webs. So sorry, that was kind of a, I kind of took over your summary. That's sorry. quite all right. I was about done. Um, so, so trying to describe the book more than that in advance is probably difficult. I'd say the book is kind of three things. You have all the sort of what I might describe as to like Jane Austen or like George Eliot concerns, right? Where you have who's going to marry who and what are we going to do with the family fortune? Right. And, you know, which are, again, very real and serious. But that also happens on top of a society which is constantly at war such that all of these people are going off to fight in wars, which are also not over the sea, but are right here. The war comes to Moscow in 1812. And then you also have the fact that Tolstoy also, at some point in the book, starts interspersing uh, the short chapters. You know, here's a short chapter, almost sort of Game of Thrones style, right? Here's a short chapter from Pierre's perspective. Here's a short chapter from Natasha's perspective, right? Right. He will also start uh, interweaving these short little historical essays throughout. Sometimes it's a fictionalized account of a real thing. Some of the generals that were fighting uh, in the war, meeting and talking with each other, or we get several chapters that are concerned with describing what Napoleon's up to. But then after a while, these start to get turned into just actual essays where Tolstoy looks at the right reader and says, so here's how people think history works, but here's how it actually works. Right. And here's, you know, not like 10,000 words, but here's a thousand words about that. And in fact, the end of the book 
you have four volumes uh, and then an epilogue. The first part of the epilogue is, you know, seven years later, here's what everyone's up to. And then the second part of the epilogue, the last thing you read, is actually just like a 20-page essay about how we should do history and whether or not free will exists. Um, the book is wild. It's wild. It is. Um, it's almost, I mean, so, by the way, amazing summary. <laughs> I don't know, but I think it's the best this I This is do. the craziest <laughs> book to try and summarize, more than any other book. I mean, I know we joked about Black Lamb and Grey Falcon. It covers more history because she's concerned with, you know, kind of these three major historical eras of the Balkans or whatever. But, um, but War and Peace, because it delves so deeply into people's lives, it, it is sort of just it's, – it's never whiplash, but it, it is sort of this incredible – shift from you know a god's eye view of you know the battle of austerlitz or whatever and then zoom right in on to like natasha's you know debut right as a person in society as a young lady in society um and so i know so before, before we start the podcast i know you and i talked about um that a lot of like the critical um like reputation of tolstoy is that everyone thinks he's like one of the greatest realist writers of all time, right? He gets inside people's heads. He does like social commentary well. I mean, all of like the Jane Austen stuff that you kind of referenced, he, he's, he's the best at. I mean, I think he's both funny in a satire way um, and he's also really touching. Like there's parts of this book, that, like I remember one time, uh, one of the times Prince Andre didn't die. <laughs> I told my <laughs> wife, like I was reading, I like, got the kitchen counter as our son was trying to sleep and I just looked up from the book and I was like, dead freaking gum it, you know, or whatever I said. Um, I was like, this damn book, like this damn book actually, like it, it has me, you know, like not only am I invested because you and I are reading it together and because it's a really smart book, but like I'm emotionally invested. And I think everyone says that Tolstoy is awesome at that stuff, but his sort of intellectual uh, didactic side that bursts through, right, that actually ends the entire book um, most of his contemporaries, like Turgenev, we, we talked about on one of our podcasts this year, but Turgenev and uh, other Russians, they thought that was like almost ruining his genius, right? Um, and there's been a lot of scholarship since saying that like, no, that's part of his genius, yada, yada, yada. And so I, I think I want to get to all the history stuff, but I almost more than maybe any other book we've read, I almost like, I'm just curious what you thought about this book, like in its, in, in, in the most book club way possible, like for example, I mean, who are your favorite characters? There are so many characters that um, you forget some of them. But, like, who are your favorites? Who did you find yourself just, you know, completely invested in? Both maybe the big ones, but also, like, any, like, small favorites. So I'm going to talk about small favorites first because that's some of the more fun stuff. So, like, any yeah. book this size, there are, there's 25,000 little side characters that you see about once every 100 pages enough that you have, they have certain quirks you get used to. I really enjoyed um, Berg or Berg. Um, I did too. Who is uh, the suitor of the, the Rostov's, I think it's eldest daughter, Vera, who we don't see a lot of. He's not a major character. Well, we meet him fairly early on. And Tolstoy says, and I don't have it right in front of me, but that he's only really interested in conversations that concern him or himself, but not exactly in the sense that he always turns everything to himself. Like he doesn't, it's not like he, he, he dominates every conversation. It's that he will sit quietly and sort of passively observe whatever's going on and nod politely. And then whenever right. a subject comes up that concerns him, he's very interesting to talk to. And then he stops and he passively observes. And later on in the book, he throws a party with uh, with Vera, his wife. One of the best scenes. One of my favorite It's such a good scenes. scene. And again, it's, it's this like satirical, it is this very much Jane Austen kind of scene where everyone's around and he's he's got like a script for how he wants this party to go because that's 
these are the important things that he has seen at other parties. And it includes not only having just the right decorations and just the right quality of people there, but it's like, well, we have to have these card games, and we have to have, at some point, a very important conversation between just the important <laughs> men in the room about politics. And so yeah. he's looking around, waiting for an opportunity for that to happen. And it's not because he cares about politics as such. It's just because that's what happens at quality parties. No, it's perfect. It's, well, it's a perfect scene, like you said, because so she's not, she's not one of my favorite characters, but you had a great introduction to Vera, who's always saying the right thing at the wrong time. And when Tolstoy marries these two characters together and then has them throw a party where we kind of see in both their heads and they're constantly saying like, yes, our party is a success. It's just like every other party, right? So we see the exactly. way in which they're like, they're going about they're going about the right thing, but they're doing it in a way that makes it the wrong thing, you know, which is, of course, everyone's used to this. Everyone knows the person who like, you know, is having conversation that should be normal, but like the way they're doing it is actually all wrong. You know, it's almost like a tone, you know, it's not a tone problem, but there's a social engineering problem or something, right? And uh, and the fact that Tolstoy is like, yeah, let me take these two characters who were not connected, connect them, and without ever seeing them again, I think that's like their last scene, basically, hers for sure. Hers, um, we see Berg one or two more times, yeah, I think. But, but she's yeah. done. That's that's like her exit from the stage is that she's this perfect kind of instantiation of, you know, the, the emptiness of society. Because, of course, the implication is that these two make obvious what is true for every party, right? That they're all sort of engineered in these artificial ways and that these two are just not as deft at engineering. Um, but I also love in that scene – he does this, he, and this is like, this, and again, this is like the least important scene in the book. <laughs> but it, you can talk about it forever because he has this great moment where, um, you know, Berg kind of like in his mind is condescending toward his wife, like, oh, she's sort of empty headed and doesn't think a lot. And as soon as you start reading it, at least if you're a 21st century person from America, whatever, you're like, ah, yes, classic, you know, 19th century sexism. But then the next paragraph is Vera thinking the exact same stuff or at least the exact level of kind of dismissive stuff about her husband. And so they right. exist in sort of this like <laughs> unspoken benign antipathy <laughs> that just is like the heartbeat of their marriage. And then like – I don't know. It's just such an amazing little portrait of some people's way of being in the world and then we just – we move on from them. You know, like they're not – they're no longer important. And I just – I found that so – I don't know. I find it so delightful. Um, so yeah, who, yeah. Anyone? Who else? Who else do we need to talk about? So I was just in terms of picking small, unimportant characters. There's a few other, like Denisov. Of course, is a lot of fun. And at least in this translation, they give him this really bizarre like speech <laughs> description. He's got he's got a GH in front of all of his R's, which makes him very hard to understand. Uh, he's kind of the fun soldierly tr character who's always getting into trouble in a fun way. But I would say of the main characters, I really did. I guess I appreciated Andrei. I don't know if I would like to talk to him, right, Andrei? Yeah. But yeah. I thought his character was so much was in some ways very interesting because he would do things that I found very surprising sometimes, but they were entirely consistent with his character. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like the whole time he's dying and the way he's talking, he's wishing he could see Natasha again and forgive her for trying to run off and you know because he's been kind of not terribly objectively cruel to her but he did just kind of break things off and run away right i guess she broke it off but then he whatever um you know he's you've got moments which you think are going to work out to being this sort of deathbed like i do love you i've always loved you and then either he'll recover or he'll say you know go in peace and live a happy life and that's not what happens right he no. he does some of that but then as he gets towards the end of death you know his sister is pretty sure that he's gonna do that because we've had a similar scene when when the patriarch of the Bolkonskis died right like the last thing he does is like 
hold Masha's uh, Maria's hand. It's not the same person. It's a different. Name, <laughs> the same person. Hold her hand and say, you know, dear heart. Right. So you're right. kind of expecting that scene, and Maria's expecting that scene, and then what you actually get is a guy who is like sort of transcended like the physical limits of the world or something like that, right? And is kind of seen beyond the veil and thus has a hard time understanding why any of this matters. I'm not saying he has a literal sort of Lovecraftian experience. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying he has this kind of perspective on things as though he's kind of dissociated from what's going on around him. Totally. Because he's dying. And it's not the scene you're expecting. He's become sort of withdrawn and hard. And he's not cruel, but he kind of doesn't, like he's not that excited to see his son. He's not that excited to see his sister. And then he dies. And it made a ton of sense both as probably the sort of thing that happens, people on their deathbeds are not always being, you know, uh, great, like, or, or always what you're wanting in a storybook. But also, he's always had this sort of moment where he will detach himself from reality. So there's this scene in the first battle, or the first major battle at Austerlitz, uh, where Andre gets wounded and he falls back on falls on his back and can see the sky and there's just paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of him talking about what that sky means and how it's changed his perspective. You know, we have a lot of context for Andre in these moments of like great duress doing this kind of dissociative state, right? This is what he does. And so it's so great to I mean that's not pleasant you wish he wouldn't do it, but it makes a lot of sense that that's how he dies. Does that make sense for why I thought that was just a great character? No, I that's actually a really good a really good point about that it, it, it like Tolstoy I, I and I can't I can't always actually like I feel like dissect it to the point that you have with Andre, but none of the characters are are out of character. <laughs> like even when they do shocking things. Like honestly, like Natasha being seduced by Anatole, um it was it was like almost a frustrating thing, right? But the way he goes about it is that it, you know her innocence leads her into it, right? And then as soon as she kind of goes, and there's actually one point where I think he does do something out of character with her. But as soon as she totally goes head over heels, he does this really smart narrative move where we're no longer in her perspective. You know what I mean? Like right. so, we've seen how she's gotten to be this way, and how she maybe has to tell herself she's in love because she's going to ruin, you know, because she's basically ruined herself. So if she's not in love, right, like how could she have done this, right? She, she has to be in love. Otherwise, she wouldn't be ruining her life. And then as soon as, you know, her life is kind of saved but still almost ruined, we leave her perspective because she is basically left, <laughs> left her, you know, her right senses in a weird way. Um, but I do think with Prince Andre specifically, um, he's also an example, and Tolstoy does this to Anna Karenina as well, where like, he, no one does epiphany as well as Tolstoy because he gives you the full epiphany, Right. Andre has an actual epiphany about some sort of spiritual thing, both when he's dying, but also, of course, in the Battle of Austerlitz. And Pierre has a bunch of epiphanies, Natasha has some epiphanies, yada, yada, yada. But what, what I love so much is that the epiphanies change the characters, but they also never stick. The epiphanies never quite stick in sort of yeah. this all-consuming way where, like, one day you're, you know, one day Pierre is such and such, and now he's completely different, like... That is true. By the end of the book, he's different. But actually, at the end of the book, Pierre is being set up to become a Decemberist, right? Like, right. he's going yeah. to become a Decemberist, and he's not going to have learned any of his lessons, and he's probably going to be exiled to Siberia, <laughs> which is not a very happy ending, even if maybe he's morally, you know, improved, right? And he has the most kind of, you know, the most change in some ways of the characters. But I just think that even when Tolstoy leads a character through an epiphany or through a sentimental scene like the deathbed stuff – he he never quite allows it to fall into something unbelievable because he's just too committed to the reality of like 
you know, life's paradoxes, which is like, that's the stupidest thing to say, but it's, it's so, I just don't know how to say it otherwise, right? Like he's so good at getting real life on the page. No. And I, and and again, it's such a, such a sort of, you spend so much of the book hearing people's thoughts. Like he'll do the thing where you get a a sentence, which is he thought, you know, um, so it's not a, it's not a, when I think of a realist book and not, 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 not necessarily in the technical, whatever the literary people say. Right. But I might think of a book that doesn't do that sort of thing. Right. Cause we don't, I might think of like Hemingway or something like that. Right. Right. Uh, so, so Tolstoy doesn't do that. You know, he's the, the characters are speaking in a way which probably people don't actually talk. I guess I don't know. I wasn't in Russia in 1812, right? But probably right. it's a little bit highfalutin and so on. It's not trying to be realistic with the dialogue the way you might expect. But it feels very real anyway because this is – you can you can believe all the psychological changes the characters go through. You know, Pierre has, I think, like four separate epiphanies and they oh, do some totally. up to changing him. But like – like you said, it's not like he has an epiphany and he says, I am forever changed. And then two pages later, he's pretty much just being Pierre yeah, he's like again, drinking but with again. like a yeah. subtle change. And I think that's how, I, mean, I don't know how many times I've had some sort of like moment where I'm like, oh, this is, this is a moment of, of, of real change. And then, you know, a week later, I'm like, wait, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's crazy is what, for my life, at least, like those real changes, they have some sort of persistence, right? Like there's something internally that maybe has shifted and yet of course you return to the same cycles again and again because there's the cliche about you know as you grow older you just grow more like yourself right and i think tolstoy he demonstrates that really perfectly and also you know it should be said that like i feel like people are always kind of um dismissive of really big books as sometimes being egotistical right that's kind of a classic you know like hey, like men mostly write big books because it's sort of about, you know, their own ego of pronouncing. And that's probably not untrue for a lot of (laughs) books that I've read. And yet actually, like, there's a real benefit to the big book, which kind of TV shows have in our current day and age, which is that you just have so long with a character that you get to see the ways in which, you know, people grow at a a pace that actually feels sort of relatable. Um. But yeah, Prince Andre is hard. I, yeah, you said it well. I'm not sure I, w- I want to like have a chat with him, but he is a fascinating character. Um, so, so who would your favorites have been then? Or did I steal oh, that's both? Am I that no, good? No, I mean, <laughs> I really love Pierre. I mean, I really, yeah. it's hard not to relate to Pierre. <laughs> you know, this like dreamy, philosophical, socially awkward person. Um, you know, uh, it's hard not to relate to him, especially in his desire to be, like, that's one of the things that I guess Tolstoy, you know, he had himself and he puts it into most of his characters that Prince Andre and Pierre both, they really want to be good men, right? Like that is the yeah. explicit kind of goal of their lives is to perfect themselves. And I don't relate, you know, Prince Andre as much because I mean, I have siblings in the military and I have no interest in like the kind of life of action that he leads, but you know, Pierre, um, I don't know. He, he definitely is sort of more of the philosophical personality, right? Um, and most of what I loved, though, is I love that he's introduced as this, he's sort of this like benign tornado. And sometimes like, you know, when you first meet him, he's, he does bad at a party and then he goes and drinks <laughs> with actually Anatole Karagin and um, uh, a minor character who's also somewhat important, Dolokhov, who's sort of antagonistic, if not villainous. And uh, they like they like they have a bear in the room, right? They're like dancing with a bear, and then they, they we hear later that they tie a bear to a policeman's back and put them in a river, <laughs> which is like amazing. So I don't know, there's something about Pierre that's very endearing to me because there's a certain innocence married to 
you know, this married to a certain rage, right? He has so much anger and yet so much naivete that probably comes from, you know, that probably comes together. Um, they probably feed each other. But And that's one of the things I thought was, I loved about Pierre's characterization is he doesn't, he doesn't really get animated that often, but there's, I think, two or three moments when he flies in just this, ra- and it was scary when he gets that yeah. angry, right? Like at one point, yeah. his wife is kind of hectoring him about something and mostly he just puts up with it. And then something just, trick trips and you think he's going to kill her like it's this horrible scene uh and then he doesn't ever really do that again except for you know one or two times he just doesn't do that until like he just has this and i think it works so well because you can understand the passion he takes to everything and why he sort of on the rare occasion when he doesn't just put his head in the clouds it ends up being maybe really bad um i don't know well i was just gonna say there's one thing that I, i think you know pierre basically i also liked him a lot because I mean, he's a man who essentially like wants to live a temperate life who has no self-control, right? right. And so he's given a huge fortune. He drinks too much. He eats too much. He womanizes. And he even – he's the one character who's like – he's not actually in the military until like at the end. He's kind of in the militia at the end. But like he's the one guy we see actually get in a duel and shoot someone. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but he's the least likely person to have done it, which is what creates, I think, the whole interesting side, you know, the whole interesting arc of his character is that, you know, he's got this tension of what he should be doing and wants to do, and yet he just can't control himself. Um, which I really, obviously, you know, I'm sure everyone does, but yeah, I really relate, I, I related to that. So, what were you, you going to say? Oh, it's just in terms of how big this book is and how much stuff there is, um, there was a Tony Award winning musical a couple years back called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 that I had heard of and didn't realize it is an entire musical that is just an adaptation of 70 pages of this book. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an entire musical start to finish that doesn't appear to add much. I haven't seen it, but from looking through it, uh, and it, it's entirely just about the time when Natasha starts to think about running off with Anatole, Anatole or Anatole and Pierre sort of talks to her later. That's, that's the entire musical. Wow. So I just, you, you can find an entire two hour or whatever thing out of just any random 70 pages in this book. So anyway, I just wanted to say that. No, I loved, I mean, so there's kind of, it's, it's almost, <clears throat> it's almost been overset at this point, the way in which these 19th century books um, were serialized such that sometimes it'd be more helpful to think of them as a as a TV series, right? Um, right. Yeah. Like for for the modern reader, uh, people used to get installments of this book, <laughs> almost like you would wait for the next miniseries of Sherlock Holmes, right? Like waiting for season four or whatever. Um, but I think you know, so as much as that's over, maybe been overplayed and overstated even, because there's a way in which this book is coherent that I think sometimes TV series are not because they're telling many different stories. And yet, even though this is telling many different stories, like a TV show, it feels to me more coherent. Um, and sorry, and yet within that, what I love so much is that you have the time and space for these these various side adventures. So one of my favorite parts of the book is basically it's when there's a break between the, the two wars, essentially, 1805 and 1812. And it's at the Rostovs' country home. It's at Christmas time. And we see Nikolai Rostov um, go hunting and, like, have this kind of magical night with um, a girl who's sort of in love with Sonia. And Natasha's there as well. And they're all, like, dressing up in these, you know, it's called mummers. They're dressing up in crazy costumes and just, like, going to their neighbors and singing carols. And it's sort of, like, it's so, it feels like it should be cheesy 
except that there is so much um, weight behind all of these people's <laughs> presence because you've been following them already for like 500 pages or more, right? Like there's so much depth to them that like this adventure they have really feels meaningful in a way that it wouldn't if it was sort of done in a 200 page book, I think. Um, but there's just also, it's, I mean, it's hard. Like I had for the podcast we talked about, I have so many notes that I put out and I feel like I'm just like a, here's a reference for you. I feel like I'm old school Craig Ferguson, just ripping up the notes on my late night talk show, (laughs) you know, just ripping them up, going to throw them away and just talk about whatever, because the book pulls you in so many different directions. Um, I do want to, before I lose my train of thought too much, (laughs) um, Another character I liked a lot was um, I'm gonna actually mess her name up. It, it's it's like Maria D. She's the uh, she's the person that Natasha and the Rostovs stay with in Moscow. Right. Um, I can't remember her. Yeah. I, she's not. She, she's in a smaller character, but she's again Tolstoy just does these thumbnail sketches of people so perfectly. She's sort of this austere society lady who has no children at home and no husband. And she takes Natasha in hand when Natasha's attempted affair goes, you know, wayward. And yet she's great. She's just this, she's this fascinating presence that totally helps the book, you know, ratchet up the tension. And then she's gone. Tolstoy just moves on from her. She's done. And I love that he could do that. He could introduce someone. They do their purpose. They're interesting in themselves. And then he just leaves them. Mara, Maria Dmitrievna. Sorry, I found it here. I wasn't too far away in my what book was it? or something else. It's uh, Daughter of Dmitri. Maria Dmitrievna. I don't okay. know if we know her actual last name, but that's who you're thinking of, I think. Yeah, that's who I'm thinking of for sure. Um, So I want to come back to – so I so we can do something else you want to, but like we mentioned favorite characters. So and you mentioned the Karagans are kind of villains. I guess that's what I would ask is do you, like are there villains in this book? Is this a book that like are the French villains or the Karagan villains? Um, I don't know, like, is this a, because I feel like this book does narrative so well and does tension so well and conflict, but like, who are the villains of this book? Um, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I, I do think that to some extent the Kuragans are, particularly Anatoly and, uh, yeah, Prince Vasily is terrible. I mean, the father, the father is himself sort of terrible, I think. <laughs> I expected he'd have a big, he, he's the first real character you meet in the, him and, and, uh, this society lady who throws parties. Like, he's actually the first character in the book, other than Anna Pavlovna. So I thought he was gonna have a bigger part of the book, and then he just kind of disappears after he gets his kids married off. Um, but yeah, he, he's kind of evil, uh, and the two kids are kind of bad. And Napoleon, of course, to the extent that he's around, is pretty much always portrayed as being this sort of ridiculous trumped up person who's not as good as he thinks he is and is always sort of ridiculous although even then he's not really that keen to say that well one of his big things that he talks about in the historical part of the book is that the great men of history aren't really that important and so he 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 doesn't like napoleon as a person but he doesn't really go that far out of his way to suggest that napoleon is like darth vader right like he's just kind of this gross little guy um but I think that to the extent there are villains for the narrative of the book, it's the Kuragans and Dolokhov, who is the, uh, even more of a dissolute. He's rake, villainous at some point, for sure. He's a villain for the first half of the book, and then he's just mostly not there until we see him again with the partisans later. Um, so I think there are certainly some characters who fulfill that function for a while. Um, but, I mean, there's not like there is one villain at the end. I mean, there's not a Tywin Lannister figure in the book. No, right? I, I think maybe I asked partly because I, I, th- I find that partly to be the strength of the book is that, yeah, that there is no actual through and through villain. Partly because I think people who are villainous for Tolstoy are sort of um, equally ridiculous or disdainful, right? Like he sort of like – he sort of snubs them or um, jabs at them 
right? Like, he doesn't ever necessarily say, like, oh, my gosh, isn't it horrible that – I mean, because he talks about, you know, at one point, like, in one of the essays, he says, you know, here's the character of Napoleon, who people think is great. He defends his actions in Russia by saying that he mostly killed people who weren't French, that his army was made up of more non-French than French, and that people shouldn't think he's such a bad general because of that. That's the person you're dealing with. So it's like that's one of the few times he's like, look at the inhumanity of some of these people – Napoleon in particular, but overall he mostly like makes fun of <laughs> Napoleon. He like like, like talks about his tummy <laughs> and how yeah. he paces and how he paces too much, right? Like and how he's a soft looking man and how his orders are totally useless in battle because he's too far away. And so I do think that's almost again the beauty of the book is that even the villains are sort of ridiculous, and so you never get kind of bogged down in a simplistic you know good versus evil scenario, but um. But yeah, so I have some more questions to talk about. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to, to jump in with, but I guess I had one. This is this is uh, I want to focus in on something for just a second here. Yeah. So you mentioned the sort of country, uh, country village, like country uh, Rostov sort of. I don't know, sixty page or whatever little excursion, right? I thought there was yeah. something just a really fascinating in there. Uh, so. Uh, at this point, Nicholas Rostov, uh, one of the big tensions in the book through him is whether he's going to marry his cousin Sonia. And I'm not sure if she's his first cousin or his second cousin or what, who is a poor rel- relation who has lived in the house. He's grown up with her and is like a 15 year old, you know, sort of school crush or whatever has said, I'm going to marry you. And she's always like, well, don't say that. You don't know that. But she clearly really wants that to happen. Right. And it's always a tension. The family has realized, oh, hey, Nicholas or Nikolai and and again, both of those are his name. That's not me remembering. They call him both. at different <laughs> <times>. <laughs> Yeah. <they do. laughs> You know, Nikolai and Sonia are maybe going to get married, and that would be difficult for our family because our family doesn't have any money. We need him to marry somebody with some. Not, I mean, they're 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 nobles, and they don't have no money, right? But they are comparatively in financial straits. Um, and so he actually does end up marrying uh, the Bolkonsky uh, princess, Maria Bolkonsky, Andre's sister. But that's one of the big tensions. And at this party, they're going to the mummers, and all the girls are dressed up as like Turks and hussars and. I'm soldiers glad you're going in on this. I wanted to and, talk about it too. <laughs> uh, Nikolai is a is a soldier at this point. He's seen some action, but he's mostly been in battles and gotten confused or scared. Right? Like right. not not he hasn't like thrown down his saber and fled, but he's been in like he goes to a bridge to help them burn it, and then gets turned around and isn't sure what's going on and doesn't help or that kind of thing, right? Which some of the most some of the best instances of Tolstoy describing how a battle is just a big confusing mess um, are in those passages there. And I do think there were some contemporary writers who said like contemporary uh, soldiers rather who read this and said this was the best description of what a battle is actually like uh, in in the nineteenth century, which is it's just there's gun smoke everywhere, you can't see anything, no one knows what's going on. And he talks about this a couple times in the historical chapters. There'll be a big battle, and both sides will go back and proudly talk about how they'd won it. And it's only a week later when they realize how many of their own men they had lost that we actually start to figure out who maybe won this fight. Right. Um, but anyway, Rostov, Nikolai Rostov has... So he's had a military career. He's even gotten a couple of medals, I think, but he's not really done anything to distinguish himself yet. And he's also not sure which of these two women, or which whether he should marry Sonia or some hypothetical rich woman. There's not a particular one at this time. And they go on this trip, and Sonia is dressed up as, I think as a hussar, actually, right? But certainly a soldier of some kind. And she's got this little painted-on mustache. And that's when he first starts to think he's really falling in love with her again, right? Which is such a, of course, you could make, you could write whole treatises about that, right? But, yes. you know, what, <laughs> A, he's already falling in love, he's already got a predisposition to fall in love with her. But the moment when he really thinks, as he's a little older, yes, I will marry this woman, is when she's dressed up as a male soldier, right? Which is obviously... Again, there's a lot you can say about that, but it makes so much sense for the character, right? He still wants this kind of military glory for himself. 
And it's not exactly homoerotic, although, again, you can, I, I don't think it's wrong to read some of that into it, right? But I don't think, it's not exactly that. It's just, in this moment, he sees a woman who is both a soldier and the woman he's in love with, and that's what he wants. And that's, I just think it's a really fantastic little scene that actually doesn't amount to all that much later on. I mean, we could have just said, and Nikolai remembered he loved Sonia, and it would have basically been the same for the rest right. of the book. But it's, I just thought it was such a great little microcosm of what's going on in this guy's head. So, Well, no, it, it's, a, it's a perfect little scene, actually. And I think so, in addition to what you said, like, which I, I totally agree that he, he falls in love, you know, he, he decides he could love her forever because of this, you know, uniform, <laughs> which is, is great for the reasons you listed. But also, I think it was also a simplistic but perfect kind of way of pointing out how Sonia, you know, she kind of is like this meek, good person right so it's she's beautiful but she's kind of like this very straightforward nice person and then that's the night she plays right she like changes herself she has sort of this energy and this ecstasy and this right this like presence that she doesn't usually have and that just felt true to life right it felt true to life as far as like how flirtations and attraction goes that like you're kind of like yeah that person's interesting and all of a sudden like you're in a musical together with them or something right and like this person is now singing on stage in a way that surprises you or whatever, right? And so I loved that, but I also love that it's once again actually kind of a false epiphany. And so what I liked about it is that um, the stuff with Sonia, it has, it definitely has, you know, narrative relevance through the rest of the novel. But I also think Tolstoy is just showing you that, like, I, th I think he's he, he's constantly caught in conflict with himself, which we should talk about more as we get to his intellectual um, pedantic stuff. Because I think the conflict for him is like, look, th these moments don't matter, right? These moments of like, almost what Andre finds out, right? These moments of like kind of petty intrigue and sort of, you know, social maneuvering. They don't matter. It doesn't matter. Like Sonia and Nikolai, they don't matter, whatever. And yet also he can't get away from the fact that like subjectively it's all that matters, right? Like not marrying the girl doesn't take away the magic of the night, right? To the point that that's kind of the same trip home that Nikolai realizes like yes I want to live in the country that's the country life I want and at the end of the book he's working himself to death partly to buy back the country estate his father lost right I don't know so there's just a way in which like Tolstoy does such a great job showing how these things yeah in some ways they don't matter like nothing pans out and yet they also they continue to just you know I don't know, if not grow inside of you, like cling inside of you to something that is there, which I don't know. Again, it's sort of, I feel like I'm always just on the verge of being like spark notes or something with Tolstoy, but I find it really, uh, I don't know, really amazing that he pulled it off and really kind of impactful. <laughs> um, I was touched by it. You know, it was a touching thing. Anything else on that? No, nope, I, I was just thinking, but no, I think I would say I would agree. I think you're exactly right, which is, <laughs> you know, we do that too much. So I'll do that. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I think that's right. Did you have anything else where I can, I, I've got so many notes. I will find something if you give me a second. No, so I, yeah, so I was going to say, so I didn't know if any other, so we're, as we talk about the book, I think let's save some of the war stuff maybe. Um, we should talk about that on its own if we can for a little bit, um, like the war scenes. But besides some of the war scenes, what, what other scenes or plot twists or whatever just stuck out, stuck out to you? Because this is kind of the joy of reading a 19th century novel, for me at least. Is like I feel like the last four to five years of my life have, have been all about like the form of the novel and the style of the novel and the writing of the novel. And it's hard because, like, yes, Tolstoy actually – there's so many crazy, awesome, formal things. Um, and to the extent that he's, you know, interested in prose, 
uh, the introduction to this to this volume and a couple of things I read, like you know, he's mostly interested in like stuff making sense. And if he has sort of a weird style, it has to do with like changing perspectives and repetition. He repeats a lot in his sentences. Um, but so, but some of the but the beauty of reading a nineteenth century book is like you're kind of allowed to care about plot. You know what I mean? Like, not that you don't in modern fiction. I certainly do. But I feel like everyone does, right? Everyone comes to the book wondering what happens and not just sort of like snobbily asking like what's the language like. And so in a book this big, I just – yeah, I was just curious like what scenes or plot movements surprised you or you know really stood out. I guess – so the duel between Pierre and Dolokhov I think is one of the strongest just short scenes that I read in the whole book. Um and because it's the way it's, Pierre is just he's he's a he's a fat man. I mean, the book's very clear about that. And he always has been. And Dolokhov is a soldier who tied a bear to a policeman and Pierre was around, but clearly didn't do much. <laughs> you know, Dolokhov is is he's a we see him throughout the whole book. He is very good so. at war. Like he is always doing well when yeah, he gets he into a fight. He's always getting demoted and then like put back up because he leads a battalion into some kind of, you know, heroic thing. The last thing last we see of him is directing the partisan war that um like help diminish the French yeah like the guerrilla warfare he's yeah he's is awesome he like walks into the French camp and like steals their information and walks out yeah. brazenly he's no. yeah he's a kick-ass soldier um and Pierre is just literally this sort of big clumsy untutored fat you know soft boy right <laughs> yeah right and he yeah challenges Dolokhov to a duel uh sorry go ahead no, I was just saying he was raised in France, right? He's like he's basically yeah. you know, he speaks Russian, he's Russian, but he was raised abroad and that implies a lot, right? That he's called Pierre. <laughs> right. Yeah. His name is actually Pyotr, you know, Pyotr Kirillovich uh Bezikov, but he's always called Pierre throughout the whole book. To the point when somebody first started talking about Pyotr Kirillovich, I was looking back at the character page like, <laughs> I did the same thing. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, but his Dolokhov is probably stepping uh, Pierre's wife, although maybe not. It's a little unclear. But at the very least, there's a there's a significant tension there. And this is before Pierre has just realized that's just how it is and kind of gives up. Uh, and this is this is in fact the moment that teaches him that he's going to just have to deal with the fact that he's not really this woman's husband in any meaningful right. sense. Right. Um, and so he just sort of finds himself challenging Dolokhov to a duel. Like, he just kind of does it. Pierre, throughout the whole first half of the book, is always finding himself doing things. You know what I mean? He's always kind of being led into stuff. He never oh, yeah. actually proposes to his wife. He's left alone with her, and he should propose, and he doesn't, and he should, and he doesn't. And then eventually her dad just walks in, stares at them, and says, I'm so happy you proposed! I mean, that's not the <laughs> word, but I mean, that's how it goes. And he never at any point says, no, wait, I didn't... <laughs> Uh, and so in, for the first half of the book, Pierre doesn't make any decisions, right? He just kind of does stuff. And this is the way this feels to him. Obviously, he is making the choice to, well, or Tolstoy would argue he isn't exactly, but that's, we'll deal with that later. Um, he, he decides he's going to fight this duel and he just kind of stumbles into it. And Dolokhov's like, are you sure? Basically, you know, right. I am a seasoned murderer and you're just some guy. Uh, Pierre doesn't know how to shoot a gun. Like he's pretending he knows what he's doing. He even has to ask how the trigger works before the, like as the duel is happening. Which that was and, an amazing, like it was, like, you can picture it, right? He talks about like, yeah. Pierre tried to like offhandly as if he already knew what he was talking about. He's like, Hey, what, like, like how do you think this gun would fire? Right? Like what, if you were, if you were going to fire this gun, what would you what do? Would you like, that's basically yeah. what he does. Right. And as, one of the things I've, I've read a lot of stuff, like I read a biography of Alexander Hamilton lately, and of course there's a lot of duels in that, and um, you know, a lot of the times duels were expected to not happen. They were expected to get right. everyone dressed up and stand out there and then figure You're out how to calm air. down. Or, or even just not actually shoot at all, right? But like that was sort of the, and even throughout this duel, everyone's like, so we're going to get up there, and then Pierre's like, no, we're going to fire. And um, 
they get up there and just for whatever reason Pierre happens to shoot first and catches Dolokhov and Dolokhov drops to the ground and says something like you know really like this basically <laughs> uh, but then realizes he hasn't fired yet and so he's lying on the ground and he holds up his gun towards Pierre and Pierre's second is like turn like you're presenting your whole body to this right. man you're a big guy like you got to at least and he doesn't he just <laughs> stares at him and Dolokhov is in so much pain that he misses and it's just this fantastic scene where something totally unexpected occurred. No one thought it was going to go like this. It's going to drastically change the rest of Pierre's life you know, and Dolokhov's life. Dolokhov actually survives the wound, but he's very badly hurt for a long time. Um, and I just thought it was just a fantastic narrative scene that's a little bit funny, but also really kind of scary, because to some extent, you don't think he's going to kill Pierre on, like, page 300. You don't really think that's going to happen, right? Right. But then there's that moment as he realizes he hasn't, his opponent hasn't fired yet, and thinks he's dying, so he's definitely going to shoot to kill, and just happens to miss. Uh, I just thought it was just a heck of a scene. Um, I don't know what you thought. No, I so I, I I totally agree. That was definitely on my my list of favorite scenes. Partly because what you said, like, okay, you have the unexpected twist of Pierre shooting first and hitting him, which actually is like so unexpected. You kind of expect it, right? Like, right. Um, I wasn't surprised that he was going to win the duel some way, but as soon as Dolokhov like struggles to aim at Pierre, I agree. I was like. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Like, I assume that this is a main character who will not die because this is a 19th century book. But like, I actually don't know the book, which is actually, so as a side note, that's one of the best things about <laughs> the War and Peace experience for me is that everyone's heard of this book. It's one of the most famous books. It's a, you know, it had a, it had a miniseries recently done on BBC that I intend to make, make my wife watch with me. <laughs> uh, sorry, Emily. <laughs> it's okay. I'm also going to make her watch the, uh, the seven hour Russian movie that the Criterion collection just released from the 1960s. So her life will get only worse and worse. Um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, like, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, besides like Napoleon, in Russia, I didn't actually know anything about this book. Um, no, that's yeah, exactly. Like, I think I knew it was about the Napoleonic War in Russia, and I knew it was huge, and that's it. Uh, which is not true of most of the big classics. I don't I haven't you know I haven't read a lot of them, but I know at least vaguely what they're about. Um, and I just haven't. I don't like. I know what happens in Anna Karenina to some extent, even though I haven't read right, it, right, right, not the whole book, but I know at least some of the big scenes. Um, but I, yeah, I didn't know the first thing about War and Peace. No, I don't know why means, that is. Well, and actually, yeah, that, and I would say Anna Karenina struck me as similar, um, only in the sense that like, so she's the main character, but there's actually a secondary main character who's as important as Anna Karenina, <laughs> who like shares half the book. And okay. no, well, I never know that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's what I mean, right? Like, 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 and so it's just totally surprising. And I, I sort of feel like that's the the curse of being a classic, right? Is that because it's such a general artifact, like the title itself and sort of the hugeness that it, it sort of becomes, you know, worn by so many hands that you don't even pick it up. Okay. And I'll, I'll, but even more so with this book, like maybe you could, like, I was thinking like, how, you, how would you entice like the average reader or whatever? Like maybe you could say like, hey, this is sort of, it's like weirdly like a love triangle, <laughs> right? Like it could be described as a love triangle at some point between Andre, Pierre and Natasha. But it's not that at all, right? It's just – it's almost too big to say anything other than like, yeah, Napoleon and Russia. That That's about right. But also like the instances of actual action are so surprising and real and fun. And in fact, the one that you picked, the duel with Dolokhov, um, you know, I, re- I, re- I reread it this year after I misstated this, this entry. It was kind of satirizing or playing in. But I read Golden Hill by our <laughs> patron saint, uh, Francis Spufford. <laughs> Yeah, And that, of course, has one of the best sort of 
ridiculous but meaningful duels in books that I any book that I've read where sort of I was, through folly the wrong person dies. Which th- I was just thinking similar. about that. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about that just a minute ago when I was talking about duels. That is such a good duel, and That's it's such a consistently surprising because you don't. I, I don't know. Yeah, man, I love that book. I, do I love too. Francis Spufford. I, I just, do too. It's the truth. <laughs> so, um, oh yeah. So, what? What? Any other scenes that st- stuck out to you? One thing that stuck out to me. Maybe I'll, I'll give you a chance to think. Um, it's not so much a scene. It is actually. It is one of the few points that I feel like Tolstoy. He sold it smartly, but like I didn't totally buy it. Is when, so after Natasha, after she fails to run away with Anatole because Sonia and you know uh, Maria, Dimitri, so forth, <laughs> or whatever her name is, Dimitrievna, yes, yeah, or Dimitri something Evna. like that. I don't no, speak I, Russian, I can never but say it's it something right. like that. I knew, I knew it was Dimitri, yeah, Dimitrievna. But um, when Natasha is stopped from you know go, running away with Anatole and. She's already broken it off with Pierre through the worst way, or sorry, broken it off with Prince Andre through the worst way possible by a, a short note to his sister, Maria. She apparently takes arsenic. Right. <laughs> she takes enough arsenic to almost kill her, or at least make her very sick. And uh, that's sort of just like slipped in <laughs> to the reader. And uh, I mean, I think he handles it well, but I, I actually didn't like that. I thought that was a bad moment. But I thought the whole the whole kind of intrigue around her being seduced um, at the opera. I thought that was amazing. I thought her meeting Anatole and his sister sort of helping him seduce her and sort of like how confused Natasha was and how much she was truly like an innocent, but also she was playing into his hands because she was curious. I thought that was, you know, I thought that was really good. I thought it was really, really, yeah, really fascinating kind of portrait of naivete and, you know, self-destruction. Absolutely. Um, so if I had to pick one other scene, well, there's a couple scenes with Napoleon, which are a little bit comical, but I think are also really cool. Um, there's a scene, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's during the 1805 campaign when Napoleon is like sitting and thinking about how best we're going to do this, you know, do this battle, right? Yeah. And uh, a couple of Polish officers, Ulans is the word, so they're like, they're cavalrymen. I don't fully understand the distinction. I think they're right. Polish. Come up. And Napoleon's sort of discussing, I think we need to get across that river. I got to think about it for a minute, you know. And then one of the officers is like, I will swim that river right now for you, Emperor. And he's like, sure. And then he sits down and reads letters. And this um, this guy and his entire unit try to swim this river that is way too big for them to swim. And so they're <laughs> drowning them and they're drowning their horses. And it's horrible, right? And they did it just to prove they could. Napoleon didn't ask them to do this, but they're right. just so in love with him as the emperor that they want to do it. And then they all come back. They fail to get across the river. Like half of them are dead. They get back and they're like, we did this for the emperor. And he looks up from his note and is like, you know, sure. Right. Like there's no. <laughs> and it's this sort of a great Monty Python kind of moment almost. It right? is. But it's, it's exactly what I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> it's simultaneously very funny. Like as it's also very horrible. Like I think he threads that needle exactly right. Because it's, it's this just great black comic moment. And then, you know, Tolstoy's kind of underlying that is also. And that's why. This kind of stuff is why millions and millions of people are going to die throughout the course of this book. You know, <laughs> this kind of thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was amazing. Now, the stuff that Napoleon in general, or, it, yeah, not, not, not as general, but the stuff, you know, generally speaking, was it was I thought it was really, really well done. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I haven't read a lot of books where I feel like um, a main player in history is so uh, concretely made a part of the action but without sort of like 
it being really just pantomime, right? Like, here's this puppet of Napoleon I made, and he's just going to do this, and he's going to sound like he sounds, in a, you know, like in your head. I don't know. It was just a, a great way to, like, render him human, but also still make your big historical points. Um, because, yeah, he's basically ridiculous. Um, and that's true for, I mean, that's true for so many of the, the major historical figures, even the ones that he kind of, like, like so the the, the general Kutuzov, right, Um I think there's a lot of people who dispute Tolstoy's, you know, uh, presentation of Kutuzov as sort of this sagely, <laughs> almost like Zen master, right? Right, um, yeah. And yet, I, I think because he kind of takes Kutuzov into his own hands and does what he wants with him, I mean, it's sort of like it's sort of like someone writing a World War II novel about Eisenhower and making him sort of new and vibrant as a character apart from his historical status. And that's just, I mean, as like a feat of historical novel writing, it's amazing. Like how, like no one gets to do that. You know, no one gets to make a novel about, uh, you know, Eisenhower that somehow says something new about Eisenhower, at least that I know of. Yeah, I mean, I guess there was like that Patton movie, you know, the George C. Scott Patton is a big deal. Yeah, well, uh, so, um, yeah, movies would be probably, yeah, movies have probably done it more successfully, weirdly. But, but I think what's what's fun about this is that, you know, for the narrative purposes, Napoleon doesn't really actually, we don't actually have to see his scenes, right? No, we don't. Mostly we totally don't. Yeah. <laughs> Napoleon and company, it's just like, this is what's going on. It's sort of the, the catalyst for what's going on with our characters, right? We could just say, right. and then I went and fought the Napoleonic Wars. Like, you wouldn't need to, I mean, you'd, you want to see the scenes with him, but we wouldn't need to see stuff from Napoleon's perspective. But again, because Tolstoy has this broader historical project he's working on about how history works, that's why he does it. And... I think it's very successful. Um, I also, another scene with Napoleon I liked is when they actually get to Moscow. So I want to be clear. I don't know much about the Napoleonic Wars and what little I know is more like the British side of things and like how it spilled over to America. I don't know a ton about that. Uh, So I'm going to just have to trust that this is what happened because I don't know. But um, Moscow, uh, the army has to abandon Moscow um, because they, they have this battle at Borodino, which sort of both sides lose. But the Russians lose it in such a way that they have to back off. And to be clear, they have to back off. That's the thing that's right. so interesting. Like Tolstoy has all these scenes with uh, the generals talking it over. And some are like, we can't give up the capital. And then Kutuzov or Kutuzov or however you say his name um, realizes that it's done. Like they did abandon Moscow. Like they can't fight now. It's not useful. Like he's not sure when it happened. And there's several scenes of him like holding his head in his hands. Like when did this, when did I do this? When right. did I make this decision? Right. And of course, Tolstoy's point is he didn't. Uh, but... They have to abandon Moscow, so they do, and then there's a bunch of, the, the, like, the the court life of Moscow continues unabated for a while. Some people start to leave until it's really clear that the French are going to be here, and then everybody leaves. Like, all of the rich people and a big chunk of the serfs and the middle class or whatever just leave Moscow, and what's left, uh, somehow the city gets set fire to. I guess there's some debate about what happened in history and Tolstoy just says it was going to happen. Like, whatever specifically caused it doesn't matter. That You had a wooden city with a bunch of, like, fires that weren't being properly tended. This was left, just going yeah. to occur. <laughs> like, <laughs> which is, because he has a whole point about historical causes that are we'll get to later. Um, but before that actually happens, Napoleon shows up, and he it's his dream to capture Moscow, this Asiatic capital, right, is how he, he describes it. And he gets there, and he's got this idea about how he's going to go in and he's going to meet the delegation from the the aristocrats, and he uses an out-of-date term for them. I forget what it is, but a term like that has been abolished for 100 years. Um, I looked it up in the notes. Yeah, same. Boyars. Like yeah, he calls them the like boyars. Catherine. The, yeah, like a term for Catherine's you know, court, yeah. basically, or whatever. Um, 
and there's nobody there. And Tolstoy opens this with this like two page metaphor about bees, which is <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh my gosh. On the one hand, a little much because what it is is Tolstoy says, so here's how it looks when a bees lose their when bees lose their queen. If you don't know what you're looking at, it looks like everything's great and everything's perfect. But then if you know what you're looking at, you realize it's dying. And so that's what it was like in Moscow. Anyway, and <laughs> but again, it's like well, two pages of it. <laughs> isn't weirdly, isn't like Napoleonic bees? That's the thing, right? Like, wasn't the, the bees of Napoleon like one of his like symbols? To be honest, I don't know, but I believe okay. you. That sounds right. <laughs> I'm Keep not going. saying you're wrong. I'm saying I don't know. <laughs> But so that would make that metaphor make even more sense if that's true. But I just thought that that whole interaction of Napoleon thinking he's captured Moscow and what he's actually captured is a you know a, a plane full of matchsticks. You know what I mean? Yes. Like there's nothing yes. there. Um, which is I, I thought the way he you know Napoleon he doesn't have like Napoleon spend five pages crying about it right? But you just he just gets disappointed and he leaves town and it's just such a I thought it was a very powerful moment that probably also meant if you were a Russian in 1860 and feeling patriotic made you very happy too right but no, totally. that, that's so what it was still good like no was I, a good bit. yeah I so and since yeah since we since we broached it I do want to talk about before we get into the the historical theorizing of Tolstoy I want to talk about the actual like war scenes a little bit at least a few of my favorite um and you, you as well, I hope, because I, I you know, the book is called War and Peace. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I mean, like you, you mentioned earlier, I mean, uh, there were soldiers who, there were some surviving soldiers who had been in the War of 1812 alive um, that Tolstoy had actually talked to or gotten accounts from and stuff. And there was definitely people who had been to war, which, you know, Tolstoy had himself fought in the Crimean War. Um, and mostly veterans who read his work especially this work they talked about his battle scenes being super accurate and super relatable in a way that most war writing wasn't right because war writing always takes at least you know it like in addresses it like everyone knows what happened right he says it's like everyone knows napoleon did this and this and this and he says because of that everyone thinks that you know people at the time had any idea what was going on or meant to do anything. Whereas in the middle of a battle, someone might ask you what you remembered of this part of the battle and you being in it have no idea because your part of the battle had nothing to do with this other part. And you couldn't have known only someone not there could have known, um, which I love. And I'm kind of tipping into the wrong point because so I think he does this really well. He said with Nikolai Rostov, but, um, smartly as we go on to the book he finds different people to kind of see war th- you know he finds different eyes to see war through and right. he puts pierre into war right pierre is basically part of the militia the national guard and he basically just like goes to the front lines of borodino <laughs> for the hell of it <laughs> it seems like i mean not really but that's kind of kind of what he does and we see him hang out with this artillery crew as it's completely disintegrated, you know, man by man. And I thought it was such a captivating scene that was both sort of humorous and also baffling, but in a way that was different than like Nikolai Rostov's earlier scenes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that scene there on the, there's a battery on a battery in the ar- artillery sense. It's up there. And which I guess is like a famous bat. Like, I don't know. I guess I don't fully understand. Cause again, I don't know a ton about, these things or anything uh really <laughs> but i guess this is like an established thing. like people talked about that battery as being important is my understanding from the text yeah right? like this is if you're I a scholar too, of yeah. if you're a scholar of the battle of Borodino, you know you're like and these guys held out a lot longer than they were supposed to which allowed right. x y and z to happen right i can't immediately think of something like that uh, but it'd be like you know talking about the actions of a specific tank battalion at the battle of the bulge or something like right that, right right um 
And so Pierre wanders up there, and again, he's this comical figure. He's this big guy. At this point, he's, he was really quite large. Tolstoy makes this very clear, right? And he's yeah. wearing like a big white hat and a big green coat. Maybe it's the other way around, but a big, you know, a big goofy hat and a big goofy coat. And he just wanders to the front line, and people are like, "What are you doing?" And every so often, somebody <laughs> recognizes him because he's a name in in you know the court. They're like, "All right, I guess you can be here." I mean, sure. <laughs> Why away, are you here? <laughs> <laughs> and he just kind of stumbles his way through to this battery where the soldiers just kind of ignore him and occasionally ask him to get out of the way and then sort of eventually adopt him as this sort of mascot because he spends the whole time in this sort of zen trance just watching right. all of his soldiers do all these heroic things and they're working together and they're laughing and they're joking every time somebody gets just obliterated by a cannonball. And then as he's leaving, it's like it all switches and suddenly he's in the middle of it and he can't even make sense of what's happening. It was such a great... I don't know. That's a really, really great scene. It really, I mean, so yeah, it really is. And, I, and what I love is that Tolstoy is just, he's, he's never going to let anyone off the hook as far as like, so here's Pierre, who's often like one of his more comical, you know, kind of point of view people. And he, like he's saying these comical things and war is always like, and I think he gets this right. Like the gallows humor of war is often all you hear at first when the battle begins, right? So, like, you hear officers making jokes. Like, you talked about people get obliterated by cannonballs, and there's sort of just jokes about it, which it's, I mean, from what I've read and heard from siblings, like, that's true. You know, it's accurate to, you know, ER places, right? It's accurate to most places where terrible things are happening. Is there's a weird amount of humor. <laughs> um, but so even though he starts from that point the situation just disintegrates further and further and further until Pierre has no idea what's happening. And he's sort of just running with other people, not recognizing French for at some point, not recognizing Russian, right? Like he sort of loses track of even who is who. And then we sort of just move away from that. Like the scene just dissolves out because the position that the battery was holding dissolves, right? Like it's overrun. And yet, the French haven't necessarily won it. It's just sort of like the battle consumes it. And it's, it's, it's really interesting because um, as much as that's always warfare, all, you know, in, in all periods, I do think that like Tolstoy seems to capture this really accurate way in which like, this isn't, you know, uh, you know, um, world war one, right. Where you have the middle, you know, <laughs> no man's land, right. Like where there's just sort of, you know, shells blowing people up. There's just so much hand-to-hand confusion of, like, the people around you. I don't know. Um, it was an amazing scene. And it was an amazing way to talk about Bordino because he zooms out to the general stuff. But he also just lets Pierre, like, go from the general staff down to, like, you know, the artillery staff. And then just kind of gets lost among the bodies who are just becoming confused and chaotic. I wish I had, you know, almost more to say about it besides how good it is. Um, I do think it's different than earlier. I do think the funny thing he does well is because one of his theories about history, which maybe we should get into, one of his theories, of course, is that like, you know, hey, whoever, like, it's so much, it's so much down to the fighting men and how much fighting spirit they have, which is kind of an old cliche, but like, who else wins a battle except the people shooting the guns? And when you see in the earlier war, war sections that are happening in Austria, there's this real like almost party atmosphere <laughs> to what everyone's right, doing. Yeah. Right, everyone's just kind of like on a tour of like Austria and also shooting at the French and running from the French. And even though it's dire, like Prince Hansard almost dies, it's just it's not nearly as heartfelt. But when the war starts taking place in Russia, like characters you saw in battle earlier, like Nikolai Rostov or Prince Andrei, like and even people around them, like the mood has changed. Right, like we see Dolokhov at some point in his guerrilla warfare. And he, he's different. You know, the, the way in which they're doing war has become kind of personal and, 
you know, more barbaric even, but it's sort of become more honest as well. So that, that, that tracks, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Those scenes are definitely, because we get a couple of like War is Hell scenes in the first fight, but it's not nearly as many as you get later on where it's, you know, I mean, he's never going to, he's never getting real bloody. This isn't the Vietnam book, right? But like, no. he, yeah. he definitely, he talks more about the physical actions of somebody getting annihilated in the Russian war than he does in the Austrian war. You know what I mean? Like, it's yes, a lot less exactly. like, and he fell down. It's like, yeah. And he fell down and there was blood coming from his head. And like, when, um. The youngest Rostov child teams up with Denisov and Dolokhov and charges blindly forward in the middle of the guerrilla warfare and gets just dropped. And yeah. you, they, they talk about it. It's described as, you know, he, he was waving his hands confusingly in the saddle, and then for some reason he's falling over, and then right. they realize he's been shot right in the head. Um, and you don't get scenes like that as much in the first part of the war. Well, and to the point that, like, in the first part of the war, in the 1805 section, you know, talking about Austria and stuff, the Austrian front, um... Interestingly, like, and I think he's trying to, like, demonstrate how baffling it is to have someone shoot at you or whatever, you know, but, like, right, yeah. pe- people, it's so casual. It's like, ah, oh, there's a cannonball. Like, everyone duck. You know, like, but, like, no one's, like, it, it, the urgency is so muted because I think it's, one, a different time of warfare, right? Like, in today's warfare, if you hear a gun, I mean, one machine gunner can, right, wipe out hundreds of people, you know, ostensibly, right. right? So it's different that, like, okay, there's a cannonball. I don't have to worry about getting, like, mown down by an automatic weapon. That's part of it. It's a different era. But also, I think it's this baffling sensation of, why would any... Doesn't at one point... Doesn't Rostov, Nikolai Rostov, say, like, why are they trying to kill me? Don't yeah, they know I was how good just, I am? <laughs> I don't know why we're on the same page. But, yeah, I was just looking up that quote. Uh, I had a note for it. Rostov is... Uh, he looked at the approaching Frenchmen, and though a moment before he had been galloping only in order to meet these Frenchmen and cut them to pieces, their closeness now seemed so terrible to him that he could not believe his eyes. Who are they? Why are they running? Can it be they're running to me? Can it be? And why? To kill me? Me, whom everybody loves so? Oh, I know. <laughs> like, he it's remembered so his mother's good. love for him, his families, his friends, and the enemy's intention to kill him seemed impossible. And he moves, he stands there for like 10 seconds before he realizes what's going on. And that's, yeah, it's moments like that that are just, because at this point he's been basically a, not like overspoiled, but still a, you know, relatively pampered nobleman's son. And yes. here he is, and I think it's his second battle, but the first time where someone is, oh, that guy is trying to kill me. Like that's. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, and it's just, well, yeah. And I just love the, can it, <laughs> me who everybody loves? <laughs> no, it's oh, great. It's yeah. So good. That's all I have to say. It's just so good. And I, I think that that was the, the surprising part about this book is that, is at one point I was going to talk about, you know, like, I think the, the only way to read this book is to kind of, you kind of just give yourself up to it. Right. Like at some point, like you're trying the, the first part is so confusing. Right. It opens in a paragraph of French. Right. Yes. And the, the entry, <laughs> the entry even talks about that, like the stuff that we find baffling today as English readers, um, especially in this translation, which tries to replicate a lot of the ways Tolstoy did it. Um, was the, the same ways it was baff, it's baffling to us now. It was baffling to Russian readers who first started to pick it up because you know so you know Tolstoy's writing for the elite educated class who spoke French as well or better than they spoke Russian, um, which was true in Russia up until like like even Nabokov you know who wrote in English famously, he was quite rich. He grew up he he grew up speaking English so fluently that when he was like three or four, I think this is right. He like he would dream in English sometimes, right? So the the Russian, you know, aristocracy, essentially, they've always been sort of like big on the main languages of the world. 
But it's still a crazy move, right? This is the opening to like a great Russian novel. And it's not like a line in French. It's a paragraph in French. And just like our edition, Tolstoy translates in the notes for anyone who can't read French. But you have to look at the damn notes. <laughs> yeah. Like the first thing you do in reading this book is look at a footnote. The first thing you do unless you read French, which I do not. Yeah, neither do um, I. And so, yeah, so, but, so I feel like that, yeah, I just, I think that that kind of happens again and again that, you know, the ways in which, you know, well, and, and even the basic thing, sometimes it's, sometimes it's like, oh, there's so many characters. Like, I, I bet if you spoke Russian, this is a lot easier. But the intro talks about, no, 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 there were so many characters. People were confused. <laughs> like, who are we yep. supposed to focus on? And I think that um, the only way to actually bring them into focus is to finish the damn book. Like that, that's kind of right. the the problem and also the beauty of it is by the end of it, I feel like, you know, okay, even though I forgot who some people were, but like by the end of it, the main people, the people you, you've, you know, followed either throughout the book or from, you know, point to point in the book, um, they've just clarified in a way that so few characters do. And um, it's the point that like, oh yeah, that's what I was trying to say earlier is like, I think at some point you, you give yourself up to this giant tome, which demands of you kind of um, submission, right? Like this is a book that says we're going to do things differently. And at some point you either give into it and are sort of like washed over by the, <laughs> the excess of it or, or you resist it. And I think put it down, which is true of a lot of the, the best big books. Um, there was an article years ago in the millions, which I referenced one time when I was reading Ulysses, which is kind of, um, it was uh, so like that there's this weird Stockholm syndrome that happens with certain big books because they just are, it, you're, you're so invested in them that you sort of give up some of your own resistance because otherwise, like, why would you keep reading it? <laughs> and that's that's kind of the down, that's kind of the negative side to, I think, the positive experience of, like, at some point, I just, I stopped trying to, like, totally dissect this book. You know, I have tons of notes and I have tons of ideas about what it does well, but it was almost like, it was almost like the best part of reading a giant fantasy novel only without the sort of escapism you get, which I just sort of, I sort of lived in the world of war and peace whenever I entered it for a while. Does that make sense? Is that, I mean, is that too romanticized? I don't mean to like no, say, I, you know, yeah. I think that's pretty right. I mean, I, I'm a little skeptical of some of that, like, and then I go to a new world whenever, yeah, you know, whenever I, right? I am like, too, yeah. But this definitely had more of that effect than even, like, I, I like some of the great 19th century stuff, but it d does not usually do that in here, right? You know what I mean? This was, right. This was definitely a different different experience. Well, and it, and it wasn't, and it's not, to, it's not to cheapen either Lord of the Rings or War and Peace to, to compare them, but there's a way in which there's only so many novels where I felt that sort of, like, immersed. And I would say Lord of the Rings would be one of them where I sort of just, like, and for very different reasons, and not, again, not to, like, compare the text at all, but there was a similarity in the experience of sort of just like coming to like think about these people as, you know, as more than characters and being immersed in it in a way that wasn't just like cheap escapism, but was sort of, you know, a platform for, you know, my own thoughts. I don't know. It was really interesting, but um, it was also sometimes really exhausting. <laughs> One of the reasons. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> One of the reasons I think that happens with this book is typified by the way it ends which is where it just kind of stops actually it picks i mean it's, it does, it's an ending yeah. it picks a spot that makes sense but the story clearly kept going if i mean they didn't they're not real people right but i mean the last thing that happens is andre's son who really hasn't spent any time with his father and his father died a long time ago he doesn't even really remember him like sitting at home having a dream and clearly going to go join probably the decemberists uprising or otherwise yes. get himself yeah. into some kind of big stupid political trouble that's the last line of the book 
right? Of the, of the not of the book, but of the uh, of, of the, the narrative, narrative yeah. portion of the book. Because then you have twenty pages about history, which we really have which to talk. We about have to talk about, yeah. Um, <laughs> but like this book, obviously, it feels like a real thing because it was based in real history, right? So he mm-hmm. didn't make it all up, right? But with the specific characters, it really feels like they had history and they had before, and they will continue to have stuff they're doing after this, which is not always true in this kind of book. You know, this isn't all tied up with a bow and that's it, which. You know, a lot, a lot of these kind of books can do that. Right. This book is, it's showing you, the epilogue is not exactly the Harry Potter epilogue, right? Here's where everybody married up and it ended great. It's really much more, so here's the problems they're going to continue having to deal with. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, here's the problems in both the marriages we care about, and this is what's happening. I mean, so the epilogue was, so the, the comparison to the Harry Potter, uh, you know, epilogue is perfect, because in some ways it's like, yeah, flash forward, here's their lives. Everyone's married and living together, but, like, the scenes of domesticity that we witness are basically Maria and Nikolai fighting. <laughs> right, And yeah. Pierre and Natasha also kind of fighting, <laughs> because he comes back from a trip that she was mad that he went on, or whatever, right? Like, it wasn't as, you know, much as Maria and Nikolai, but... What was also frustrating is, of course, it also typified um, Tolstoy's genius in that I'm not sure I've read much – I'm not sure I've read any better scenes of a happy couple fighting, to be honest. Like I actually read some of this to Emily, the parts when Maria and Nikolai fight because it was just so descriptive of how she and I turn against each other. And then in a flash, just like Nikolai, I make a joke and like we come back together. You know what I mean? Like, And it's crazy because – the amount of like you know terror or frustration or annoyance you feel when you're not able to say anything and all of a sudden you're one mind again right talks about Nikolai's talking out loud not because he's even interested in her listening but because they're one you know like they're one he's just talking out loud because she's part of him and she does the same thing and it was like but it was all based in this weird fight they have which sort of perfectly captured what it means to like have it you know a good relationship which is crazy like that's just the epilogue that's just him throwing it out there and but it also like you said it also it grounds this happy ending by saying this is just where they are this isn't like happy happily ever after this is just what happens including like you yeah. said i mean so tolstoy um he did research for this book hoping to write a book about the decemberists <laughs> um and he just kept going so far back in the napoleon history napoleonic you know, war stuff that it ended up being about that instead. And I think, yeah, we're definitely supposed to assume that uh, Nikolai Bolkonsky and Pierre, actually, that they both become Decembrists and probably have a terrible life, which is a great way to end any book. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, All right, so we got to talk about the history stuff. We have to talk about the history stuff, yeah. So I want to say about two-thirds of the way through the book. So he, he's, been, he's been interleaving the sort of narrative that with our characters, with narratives, with historical figures from pretty early on. But I want to say about two-thirds of the way through the book, he starts opening parts. So, so the book is split into four volumes, and each of those volumes is split into between, I think, three and five parts. Um, and then each of those parts is just like 30 or so chapters, which are often very short, like two or three right. pages long. Um, so he starts opening parts with an essay, right? Not just here's what happened with Napoleon specifically, an essay about how history works, because he's got a couple of pretty broad overarching theses, which again is how he actually ends the book. The last 20 pages of the book is a standalone essay. It doesn't even reference the characters of the book, right? It references Napoleon, Napoleonic Wars, but it's not like, and you can see that 30 pages earlier when Andre did, it doesn't do that, right? Yeah. Um, and he's got this whole theory about history where he says, look, the great men of history, the Napoleons, the Tsar Alexanders, are not the causes of history, right? They say, he says, to say 
that 600,000 men walked from west to east, killing everyone they met because Napoleon ordered them to, does not satisfy. That's not enough. That's true that he issued an order and that that happened. But why did 600,000 men do that? Because Napoleon told him to, right? Like, why did this happen? And he has a whole theory he gets towards the end where naturally the people who actually do the thing have the least to do with the orders and the people who have the orders have the least to do with doing the thing he says it's like a cone like in the military he says most of your fighting is done by the privates who don't really issue orders all the way up then till you have a general who sits two miles away from the skirmish issuing orders which are nearly always received too late right and can't work and he talks a lot about the genius of napoleon being a little bit confusing because he didn't really do anything differently in russia than he did all these other places it's just that there, because he issued way too many orders everywhere he went, and sometimes what actually happened matched up with the orders he gave, and sometimes what actually happened didn't. And that's it. Like, and also all he ever did was kill anybody. His whole thing, he went to Africa and <laughs> killed a lot of people, and then he went to Russia and killed a lot of people, and for some reason, then they banished him, and then, right. and he, in our translation, it will say for some reason all the time. Like, that's, yep. it, uh, I mean, it's, it's two words different from saying four reasons. Like, I mean, <laughs> Because no, that's really how I yes. read, you know. No, well, that's okay. so he has this amazing pastiche, which I think you're partly talking about too, where he um he kind of does this pastiche of like, here's how historians write, right? Here's how they think yeah. things happen. And he just says, you know, so like um <laughs> he says, certain men were writing books at the time. At the end yeah. of the 18th century, some two dozen men got together in Paris and started talking about all men being equal and free. That led people all over France to start slaughtering and drowning each other. <laughs> These yeah. people killed the king and many others. <laughs> like he and he goes on like that. He goes on to kind of he totally he totally removes these events from like the context that historians are always putting them in and says you're basically taking all of these separate dis- disparate events and saying this led to this. But if you look at the event that you're calling a cause and then look at the event that you're calling an effect, how could this cause ever explain this effect? Right? Like he says. Like, okay, some people started writing books and talking about freedom, and then all over France, people began slaughtering their neighbors. Like, that's that's not a sufficient cause for him, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, so yeah, you can keep going with what you're like with his theory if you want to explain more. Because I think he is talking about like the uselessness of cause and effect, especially when you talk about great men, to the point that I think, you know, he's been accused of. I'm not sure he could be exonerated from fatalism. Right. I think there's a way in which he is definitely, if not advocating, saying fatalism is a more coherent explanation than the current historical analysis. Well, that's I mean, the end of the book, by the end of it, he's even moved past history to talking about the existence of free will like at all. The last yeah, like no, five or six pages, yeah. that's what it's about. He says, OK, so back in the day, we all thought the earth stood still and everything moved because it feels to us as though it's immobile. And we had to do a lot of science to realize, no, in fact, the earth moves. Similarly, we all feel that we have free will, but that's just because we don't really understand the laws of history and we haven't really thought about how necessity works. So maybe we need to quit thinking that, which is also just a bonkers way to end a novel. Well, and so that's so it's just so that, I mean, so I feel like so Isaiah Berlin and other a few other people I read, like they, they, this is always like the conflict of Tolstoy, right? That on one hand. There's this tension where he has just spent a, a, the greater bulk of this 1,200-page novel showing you the inner life of people, right? What it feels like to try and make choices in difficult situations. And even though he has shown that often those choices are 
you know, like the epiphanies don't don't stick or the choices are sort of necessitated by other circumstances or whatever. Like he's shown you what it feels like to try and live in the world amidst great causes. It's baffling. It's not neat. The great men don't matter. But there's still this emphasis and even, I would say, honoring of basically subjective free will, right? He shows people trying to change. And yet he ends the novel <laughs> with what he has also been trying to demonstrate through the, the war scenes and especially is that the further you get from an event, he says, the less you attribute it to your own choices, right? You you know, if you look at something you did a second ago, you say, of course, I chose to do that. But you look at something you did 20 years ago, and you start talking about all the causes that led to, let's say, the car crash, or you sleeping at your friend's house, or you cheating on your wife, or whatever, right? You start to talk about all yeah. these causes that led to this thing, and those causes become clearer the further you get from it. So that free will becomes diminished over time, at least as far as an explanation goes. Um, but I don't think he, even in the historical essay, or definitely in his own damn artistic work, he never actually expels free will from the conversation, right? Because he talks about however minuscule it gets, you can never get totally into a place of non-free will, right. just as you can never get to a place of totally... Um, determined causes, right? Predetermined causes. I don't know. So I, I thought, and honestly, in some ways, I've thought for a long time in my own amateur mind that like free will and predestination and the idea of scale, that like those three ideas are in some ways the crux of like at least the philosophical issues that I care most about or theological issues that I care most about as well. And he even references that like when you like, you know, what are statistics but a way to remove free will from the conversation? Right. No one, you know, I don't know. So I, but I just I found it a fascinating thing that like apparently most critics have dismissed as crankery. <laughs> and Isaiah Berlin does a, does a really good job. Isaiah Berlin is responsible for the last 50 years of saying Tolstoy is not a crank. He's just he he is, you know, he is kind of a destructive force who wants the truth and won't settle for anything that has any error. I mean, almost like error. So, you know, sorry, almost like Socrates. Right. Like. You know, you right. can't claim to have knowledge because you don't have complete knowledge. That's kind of what Tolstoy keeps doing is like, you don't have a complete answer. So how can you give the answer you're giving? Um, but what yeah, what was your reaction to all of that? I mean, did you like the not only the move to write this way, but the actual thoughts or what? Yeah. What was your reaction? I don't know. It's such a weird thing because there's you can't say they're disconnected because he's often you know, he's always talking about Napoleon when he's talking about how history works. But like I said, he. he 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 resists drawing direct parallels between whatever the heck the narrative in the book is about between his essay sections. He like I said, he does not in any of his essay sections say, and that's exactly what was going on with Andre right now. Like right. he never transitions between them. He just it just happens. He'll transition from an essay about how history works to a description of what Napoleon did and then to here's what Pierre was doing in jail and you know you know you know what I mean? Yeah. Um and so I I can't help but feel like the choice to end it makes it feel like what he's trying to do by the time he's finished this book is there must be some way that the narrative of the book is intended to help demonstrate this essay. I mean, there's got to be some, like, this is the takeaway or something right. like that is the only way I can make any sense of it. But I'm just not really sure that is the takeaway of the narrative. It's totally at the not. Same time, <laughs> at the same time, I love all of his points about, you know, how history, trying to assign history just to the these great men doesn't really understand what's happening. I think that's very well oh, observed, and yeah. it's very clearly demonstrated in the battle scenes. I mean, that's very clear there. I love one of the first battle scenes with the general, I'm not sure if it's Bagration, Bagration, yeah, Bagration, Bagration I'm not sure, but yeah. he's, he's a real Russian general, 
And I think it's Andre who is there in, the, in a battle in Austria after Austerlitz, I think, but still in that campaign. And uh, people keep running up to him and saying, this happened. And he always says, very good. Or like, that's exactly right. And Andre realizes that Bagration knows he can't do anything to change anything, doesn't know what's happening. But what he can do is try to make all the troops think that whatever's happening is according to his plan. Right? Yes. And that'll yes. keep the morale up. And so that's all he does there. And that's perceived as like Andre realizing that's a good general who knows what he's doing. And so there's stuff like that that makes me think that the broader historical points about how the way we do history is bonkers is demonstrated by those portions of the book. And to some extent, by the way, the war then interacts in the characters' sort of more peaceful lives. That makes sense. But the broader point about free will, I'm just not sure what that has to do with the rest of the book. And I'm not sure if it's because it got away from him or if I'm just not smart enough or what. But I, I was like, I really like this ending. And in the last five pages, I was like, I'm not sure this followed, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's so I, I do think that's even one as Isaiah, Isaiah Berlin talks about that there's sort of this unresolved conflict that uh, I mean, Isaiah Berlin thinks that there's a consistency to Tolstoy's destructive thought, which is that he's not a nihilist. Right. And he's not even a mystic. I mean, even though he becomes like a mystic kind of later in life, supposedly what he's actually what he actually is, is sort of. Um, you can almost call him a post-structuralist in the sense that he like so like structuralism was like you know all of these things have meaning because the meaning's contingent right and then the post-structuralist came along and said okay all these contingencies are insufficient because you keep following them down the ladder of being and there's nothing at the end of it <laughs> to explain how any of these contingencies you know came into existence or whatever and so it's sort of the logic of structuralism to get to a place of you know more extreme relevant meaning right and so in some ways he reminded me of that where he's sort of taking like the logic of historians or positivists or whatever and saying okay i also believe in discrete cause and effect i also believe in like trying to isolate every cause and effect but when i do it i do it so finely and carefully that what you have said to me seems incorrect because you know you've just kind of used the convenience of juxtaposition or correlation, of course, to imply causation, whereas I'm saying there's no way in hell that some guy saying, let's go to, to Russia, explains 800,000 men trying to murder 100,000 other men. <laughs> um, right. And so I think Tolstoy does a good job destroying certain ways of thinking. But I don't know that I, I don't know that I got any any really clear positive message. You know what I mean? Like what's the positive message except that like things are out of our hands more than we think they are. You know what I mean? But like, I think he would have been, I think what the book does maybe be, maybe, maybe without his will even is it does, it does put you in this place of paradox or what theologically would be called mystery where there does seem to be this obvious determinism to things that like, basically any scientist would agree with if you were talking about material the de determinism right like when he talks about free will being an illusion that's like straight up what neuroscience is currently trying to tell us right um and yet what i think the book demonstrates is this really uneasy inexplicable paradox where if you scale down to the point of individuality and internal you know outlook on life it, it's impossible not to, not to say that there is something that is i that goes forward trying to do things because that's literally everyone's experience. <laughs> and yet you scale up and you say, yeah, but like if you look at history or mankind or movement from this godlike statistical level, so many things are predictable, right? We can predict reading habits or incarceration habits or we, we, all the stuff that we can supposedly predict. 
which at the level of the individual feel unpredictable. And I think the book has a great way of saying, like, this is unresolved. This is an unresolved thing, but that we certainly shouldn't act as though it's as though it is resolved. And I think he might try to a little bit at the end, but I think maybe what, what I think he's done best is say, like, look, this is unresolved. And the great beauty and terror of things is that we can't resolve it. Um, that's what, I mean, but, but I, I worry that I'm projecting onto him somewhat because I actually think Isaiah Berlin, some of his essays, I think he projects a little bit to say, like, Tolstoy's not a mystic. And I'm like, ah, I mean, Tolstoy might be a mystic. <laughs> you know, like, at the end of his life, he certainly <laughs> is a religious, you know, figure. But he definitely, he definitely thinks that, you know, material causes, which is all, all he examines, he thinks they're insufficient. At some point, that is mysticism, like, by way of scaling down to sort of the infinity of atoms as opposed to scaling up to the infinity of the heavens. Does that make, you know, you know what I mean? I don't know. But in terms of did I enjoy it, I en- which is, in terms of like, did I enjoy it, I did mostly enjoy it. He says the same sentence a few too many times about how. Oh, he so does. Like, he only really does this in these sections. He's got about two paragraphs that say, and we always say that history is made by great men, but it isn't. And he says that, I mean, almost in exactly the same language, about eight times. And I get that this was a serialized book, but I don't think it was serialized that finely. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a pretty minor complaint to make about a 1,200-page book. You know what I also sometimes wish people would get back to? Like, I, I don't love talking about books as, like, you know, like as vegetables, right? Like, you should read books because they're good for you and not watch TV, which is junk food. I mean, that is sort of how my life feels. You know, like, when I read books, I do feel mentally healthier than when I'm just binging TV. Um, but I hate talking about that way because I, I think the reason to read books is because they're, they're fun and it's pleasurable and learning is fun or whatever, right? Like... Adventures are fun. Fiction's fun. Whatever. It's like you should do a pleasure argument and not a didactic argument. You know what I mean? Right. But um, what I also wish, though, is like I do wish people would talk about the benefit of having a story <laughs> deliver all of this crazy information. Because I got to tell you, like there was a one point um, and he, I was about done with him and the idea of military science being meaningless and the idea of history being fatalistic. Like I was like on the verge of like saying stop forever not with the book, but just like, you know, being angry. And then he uses that to descend perfectly and organically into Denisov and Dolokhov's guerrilla warfare, which is like one of my favorite sections from the book. And, I, and that happened again and again, where he uses the book as, you know, he uses the narrative as a platform to talk about big ideas. And he uses the big ideas to transition back into these characters' lives. And I know this is kind of straightforward and, and often what science fiction does, but like I, I think weirdly, even though it's maybe the only thing books are celebrated for in some ways, I think we still maybe underplay how amazing it is that these works of fiction can expose you to stuff, right? Like I'm just not sure I would have read these essays that Tolstoy writes if it wasn't appended to one of my favorite narratives of all time. Do you know what I mean? Like I mean, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, okay, I mean, I might have, like Joel might have, Bill might have, but you know what I mean like, but the average reader wouldn't have. I don't think they would have. Just like in eighth grade, I literally didn't know much too late in life what the like, or maybe it was seventh grade. Like I didn't know what the Byzantine empire was until I read a bunch of fantasy books on it. And then I, you know, I was exposed to it. And I just, I don't know. I just think there's a way in which like, that's like the simple school age reason for why this book is awesome. But I genuinely like, I feel like I learned a lot <laughs> about Russia no, and about Napoleon wars and about, I don't know, like I was challenged on my philosophical ideas. That's amazing. I think. 
Well, that's we talked about this with Black Lamb and Gray Falcon about how one of the things prose can do. Black Lamb and Gray Falcon is not fiction, or it, it, I mean, it's sort of fiction, right? Because right. nothing ever went down exactly. But it's not not certainly not fiction the way this is. Right. Um, but like, you know, when she, she does that, we we both pointed that out that that crazy transition from the Tsar Lazar's. Uh, battle and as a consequence of that many unpleasant things happens including that i'm sitting in this crappy diner you know yes. what I mean? that transition Ugh, greatest jump cut like, of all time <laughs> yeah it's so good <laughs> but the way prose can allow you to just completely change focus and zoom in and zoom out in a way that's really hard to do in a lot of our other media um i think is is demonstrated also by this book because you know you can have that harsh transaction from a or transaction transition from a six paragraph essay about history to and then here's what happened in this history in a way that you can't really do in a lot of other media i'm not sure how you would do that in a film yeah you know well, what I, mean? I mean yeah no i think you're right i mean i think the uh either the intro here or maybe isaiah berlin talks about actually that the ways in which tolstoy plays with and demonstrates interiority and the kind of the way that he prizes the inner life as all that matters um at times at least even though he's like the exact opposite of her it's very virginia wolf-esque right and yet on the other side, he's doing these Homeric epic battle scenes that kind of he's kind of he's kind of in one book covered the range of like imagination. Right. He's covered the range of like, you know, if books are good for anything, they're good for like you can project yourself into someone else's interiority or you can let your imagination kind of go wild in a way that like movies will never quite capture, you know, um, like the bigness of my imagination, I think, does outstrip, you know, anyone's budget. And he kind of does both <laughs> to like their extremist degree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, this is a book about everything. And yeah. <laughs> that's, first of all, it's impressive that he can write convincingly both scenes between just a couple of teenage girls goofing around, you know, in a house. And then he can write these massive battle scenes and he can write court intrigue and he can write social pastiches of parties. And like, I, I don't know how, is there anybody now who does that? I think it's kind of out of style to do that kind of thing. With There's definitely, some good reasons, to be clear, but like... Yeah. <laughs> well, I do. I mean, I think there are people who are trying to do their own version of it. I mean, I think the one class, one of my favorite classes I took uh, at Syracuse for my MFA, well, it was taught by Jonathan D., who's like both an awesome novelist and um, possibly an even better critic. I mean, not really. He's a really good novelist. I don't mean to minimize his, no his novel writing. But um, he, and so it was a book on realism, and he kind of talks about this, you know, the great transition of realist fiction from this omniscience to this extreme, um, you know, kind of first person or third person restricted narration, right? That like no one just jumps from brain to brain anymore um, in the most serious fiction, supposedly, which I'm not sure is true. But like he does talk about the way things have narrowed from the godlike perspective of Tolstoy, who right literally is both hanging over the battlefield, jumping from head to head, sometimes within within one chapter, right? It's like it's not always a clear cut point of view character because he just switches. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I think there are people who are trying to do encyclopedic work like this. Like I think Donda Lillo and Rachel Kushner. Um, and I actually think some of the sci-fi writers are, but I, I don't, I, I will say, I actually don't know that you, I mean, in some ways, like, like how could you do all the stuff he does unless you wrote from this third person omniscient perspective, right? Like he's just so confident talking about everything. And part of that's because he's allowed to by the style of the time. Like I wonder yeah. if you wrote like this now, I think people would be like, you know, stuffy or, you know, awkward, right? Like awkward transition. That would be the note on my my MFA manuscript. Right, like, this yeah. This is awkward. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely, I mean, 
we both obviously love this book, but even knowing it was a classic, even having loved Anna Karenina, um, I think it still surprised the hell out of me. It definitely, it's just, it just surprised me with so many of its, you know, choices and even just the basic plot of like, I didn't see the fact that Natasha was going to marry Pierre. Didn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah. I mean, until the end when it was obviously coming, but like, I didn't think that's how the book was going to end, you know, with them getting married. That was a surprise. And he just gets Agreed. to, yeah, gets to have it all. It's a, it's a really good book. I, I would say the first hundred pages were a little confusing just because I lost track of who the heck everybody was. I totally agree. Um, because he'll just jump from, he'll just say, at the Rostov's house, and you're like, wait, do I know the, the Rostov's? No, I don't. Okay, very good. Um, and part of that is just because these aren't names I'm as familiar with because they're Russian. And also because uh, everyone's a princess. I don't know what <laughs> princess know. means in Russia. I know. Here, like, yeah. you, when I think of England, that means the direct descendant of the king. <laughs> that's not what it means here. So I don't know who, you know, that's fine. There's different like whose account and whose account whose account versus who is a prince I don't know. Right. I assume it's some difference between like a duke and some lesser analogous position but I right. don't know. And so there's a scene early on when both uh Helena Kiragin and uh the little princess whose name is also like Elena or something like that. Uh the Bolkonsky's wife who dies pretty early. Right. There's a scene early on when they're both in the room and they're both described as beautiful although in different ways, but because I think they're both called princess at different times, I completely lost track of who was who and had to read that scene like six times. Um and that's I think just a function of cultural difference mostly. But there's a couple moments like that in the first 150 pages of this book and you just got to power through those and be willing to look at the list of characters at the beginning. Just just give yourself the authority to say who the hell is this guy and flip back 20 pages <laughs> to look at the <laughs> list of characters at the so beginning. I, yeah, that's here that's, for a good reason. <laughs> yes, it really is. So I know I'm kind of running out of time, but I, I do there's like three things and then whatever you want to talk about too, I want to try and fit in before I have to go. But um, yeah. I, I wanted to point out, so um, so one of the first things I want to talk about is if there were anyone in particular who you just couldn't remember when they came up because there's one guy and I'm going to curse. So prepare to beep this. Who the fuck is Shin Shen? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I mean, I figured out who he was, but like, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Like three times he came up and I was like, I, again, I'm going to curse again. Who the fuck is this guy? Like, why is he talking? I don't know who this is. And it wasn't like mad at Tolstoy. It was just like, like, I don't, like, I can't keep track of 18 main characters. And also then some asshole named Shen Shen, who's, like, kind of funny, but not even that funny. Um, I thought that was, and that's one of the, you know, verisimilitudes of the book, right? Is that Tolstoy could have easily put those bone mots, as he calls them, that someone else has as well, right? He could have given that to a different character, but he doesn't. Because in real life, there's always some random-ass relative who stops by and says something and then goes in the room and drinks. You know what I mean? Like, that's great. But it was so confusing to me whenever Shin Shin in particular came up. I don't know if you had anyone like that who you were like, by the fifth time, you were like, okay, I've got it. But it took four times. <laughs> yes. So I remembered Shin Shin, actually. Uh, but I understand, because, yeah, uh, for some reason, his first appearance stuck in my head because I thought he was going to be more important. But... Um, Julie Carrigan, who becomes Julie Drubetskoy, <laughs> yeah. who is Maria's pen pal, and then she ends up marrying a character we haven't talked about named Boris, who at the beginning of the book I thought was going to be a major same. protagonist Probably because be he's introduced character. basically the same way Pierre is, right? As like a similar kind of here's someone else who is being discussed at this party, right? And then he just disappears by the end of the book. I actually think he's a I think it's a cool arc, and I like his character, and it's not a criticism. I just thought he was going to be a bigger deal. But anyway, there's this gal, Julie Carragin, to be clear, not Kuragin, Carragin, and that's yeah. one reason I was confused. <laughs> you know. There's the Kuragins who are the villain family. That's, again, reductive. But And then there's this gal, Julie Carragin. There are no other Carragins we meet in the story. Um, she's a pen pal friend of Maria uh, Bolkonsky, who is very wealthy because everyone in her entire life has died. And um, 
then Maria meets her in person and she's not as fun as she used to be or not not fun but like not as they don't they don't they're not on the same page and then eventually this minor character sort of tracks her down and marries her because he's looking for a wealthy bride and in fact has briefly courted everyone else in the book at some right. point um and when it was all of a sudden Bar- boris is now trying to date julie carrigan i was like carrigan i thought the only carrigan daughter was the one who's married to pierre he's trying to date pierre's wife but he's friends with pierre but oh no different person who the hell is julie well, <laughs> boris, boris has an affair with pierre's wife named Kurrigan. <laughs> yeah or at so, least some kind of like yeah intimacy of some kind and so i was like what <laughs> oh my gosh i know um, so yeah, so that's definitely part of the fun of this book is being like, who the F is that? The other part that I, I wanted to just mention, um, at least one line, maybe, maybe two lines. Yeah. I want to mention two moments. So one moment, cause Tolstoy does so many big things and he's not known for his prose, which I don't read Russian. So who knows how his prose is in Russian, but like he does have these moments of description that I don't know if it's good writing, but it's incredible observation, which is what he's known for. But even every now and then there was an extra, you know, an extra I don't know, an extra momentum in what he was saying. One of them was when he's describing Pierre's wife. Um, it's on uh, page 460, I think, in our book. Um, oh, yeah, here it is. So at one point, Tolstoy is describing um, Helene, Pierre's wife, uh, and she's in a room full of people, and he says that she – Helene there uh, – sorry. Her shoulders were thin, her bosom undefined, her arms slender. Weird bosom stuff in this book, by the way. There um, is some weird bosom stuff in this book. That is true. <laughs> but on Helene, there was already a sort of varnish from all the thousands of gazes that had passed over her body. And there was just something about like the way that he concretized the male gaze <laughs> into this varnish. I, I thought that was crazy. And he, and he does that so ca- he does it so often, it almost doesn't stand out, right? He's always throwing out these like perfect descriptions or metaphors or analogies that the person that, that he didn't just move on from. And um, you mentioned his dialogue earlier. I, I think sometimes his dialogue is, I mean, I, I, felt like it, I felt like it was truer to life, um, at least how I imagine courtly life in Russia. In some ways, it felt like he was trying to be realistic. But at times when he descends into like these pitter patters of like, you know, various voices talking without any tag, yes. that's when he does his best dialogue for me as far as like what people might say. And there's a crazy moment with um, Moscow being abandoned by the authorities where this poor little criminal is basically maybe not even criminal he's basically given to a mob to kind of help we'll call him like the sheriff basically get out of town right and um is this there's this 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 mob dialogue and someone randomly shouts out hit him with an axe or something (laughs) 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 and it's so dark but so i feels like so accurate you know i mean i I don't know It's, it's crazy because like there's a flood of that. There's a flood of good things happening. And so it was impossible to note all of them. But I just wanted at the end here, I wanted to point out that like there's all these small moments that I love from this book that are just impossible to relate because it's like sometimes a sentence, as much as it is, you know, Pierre going into the Battle of Borodino, this huge epic, you know, you know, masterpiece of <laughs> action writing. There's also these just little lines, not even a scene, but these lines that he can get away with. I mean, he does it all. It's incredible. It's really incredible. No, I would... I would agree. You know, obviously I don't read Russian and I don't know if it's like this in every translation, but at least in this uh, Richard Pevier, Larissa Volokonsky translation from a few years back. Yeah. I mean, almost every sentence, no, no, but like on almost every page, I could have written down a sentence or two that I really enjoyed just on an individual basis. Yeah, um, he's, totally. he's really, which means for all the book, the book certainly feels long. I'm not saying it feels like it's a breeze to read. I'm not saying that, but it mostly didn't feel like it was wasting my time. If that makes sense. Agreed. Right. Because he will fast forward through stuff that's boring. You know, he's not going to, and he's not above, actually, one note I had written is actually also about Boris, 
Boris spends about five seconds courting Natasha Rostov. Yeah. And the Countess is like, this is a bad idea. Don't. And so, and Boris also thinks it's kind of a bad idea because he's not really that attached to Natasha as such. And so we have a section of Natasha going into her mom's bedroom and having this like, oh, I don't know. I kind of love him because she's right. 15 at this point. And it just cuts to the next day, the Countess, having asked to see Boris, had a talk with him. And from that day on, he stopped visiting the Rostovs. Yeah. Because it's like, we know exactly what that conversation was. We don't need to see that. Like, we get it. And so he he doesn't really waste time, exactly. It's just a big project. And yeah, I enjoyed that sad. more than... Because I've definitely read some stuff where I'm like, all right, I don't care about any of this. And I mostly never felt like... I, I, I rarely felt like that in this book. Same. And it was never in the narrative sections. It was only when he would sometimes repeat himself in an essay. And I was like, I, I yes, said literally this you. before. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you. <laughs> yeah, man. So I don't. So yeah, I don't think I really have. I mean, I have other stuff in some ways. I could talk about this book forever, but for the purpose of this podcast and how the conversation is gone, I'm not sure I really have much else. I don't know if you have a ton else. I I don't think I do that. I want to because yeah, like you said, I could just start picking out other favorite scenes, but we would be here all day. Um, I think it's really worth reading. It is a project, but I don't think if you get at least a good translation. I understand the old Constance Garnet translation is a mess, but I haven't read it, so I don't know. Um, I. I would say that this is a good translation. It's the one that you'll probably see if you just type in War and Peace on Amazon and you look at not the public domain one. Um, and it's really worth it. It's really full of life. It's really vivacious. It's really funny. Like I, It is really funny. There's a great, there's a great gag where somebody's talking about... So there's, it's, it's Russian Orthodox, right? So there's icons everywhere, which are images of the saints, right? And there's, a, there's an icon of the Virgin Mary somewhere. And I forget the details, but somehow, like either because a general is so like dedicated or because a miracle appears. But the, the discussion is like, and then like the general's like medal was on the icon of the Virgin Mary. And somebody says, so is the mother of God in the army now? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just great jokes. Like I don't, <laughs> <laughs> that was it is, great. you know, not every page. I think the no, actual quote is, but... is the mother of God a general now, but like it's, not every page, but there's a lot of really good jokes in this book. It's re- he's really gets my attention and sticks with it in a way I was not necessarily expecting for a 1200 year old, 1200 page, 19th century Russian epic. Same. It's a fun book to read. It really is, and I and I would add about the translations. Um, I also own the mod translation and the one that was supposedly like AOK'd by Tolstoy, and a version of that, um, not the exact one that I have, is used for the. Um, there's you can find it on the um, on Audible's, you know listings um it's it comes in just for anyone who wants to buy this or listen to it um it's actually a really good listen so the the mod translation comes in two volumes on audible the narrator's awesome and it's just like an as as just an advertisement for it you know because they're uh they're different than these guys they translate most of the french into english which makes it nice for listening because i don't have to look things up but i i did it usually to supplement or to to just i was curious if the translations were hugely different and it does feel like there was a life to the um, the one that we read, Peviar and Volkonsky, there's a life to the language that I didn't always get in the mod translation. But honestly, if you have a long commute and you want to do this book audio, the mod the mod audio is great. And actually, I think from his Instagram, <laughs> I saw that another writer we like a lot, Brian Phillips, he actually recently just listened to this on audiobook. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's not only me, it's also Brian Phillips <laughs> who think this is a good idea. But it is. It's a very readable book for how big it is. Once you get past the initial who the F is everyone, it it, it just it flows. And to be clear, those scenes have a lot of like the early scenes are still they're very still good great. on an individual yeah, basis. Great. It's just you're checking every three seconds to look up who everyone is. He could. I don't know if he could have been better about that. At some point, the book's already very long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, but yeah, I don't have anything else. Um, just for housekeeping, I don't think we know what our next book is, but we're still doing the podcast. We have a, a list of alternatives, and uh, we're going to talk about it. Um, we do intend to still do an end of year sort of. This is what we read in 2019 podcast. I don't know exactly when that will be. It may be early 2020. We'll see. <laughs> I started be, a new yeah. job, and I am um, <laughs> I'm busy. very busy. <laughs> <laughs> And Joel has, like, children and stuff. Yeah, my son's not sleeping, so so it's been great. (laughs) uh, So I'm not sure when that'll be, but we're still doing that. Uh, We plan to, at least. And, uh, yeah, this has been two years now we've been doing this podcast, and I uh, have really enjoyed it. And uh, so thanks for doing it, Joel. Yeah, man, this has been awesome. And I I think, uh, and I've said it before, but, like, some of these books you and I probably would have read anyway. There's a few that I wouldn't have, actually, I don't think. Um, But it is just, honestly, like... Yeah, I, if I had read this book and not had anyone to talk with about it, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I would have gone insane. Like, yeah, yeah, because it's just too much. Too much. There are too many ideas that are like inspired by it. So, yeah, it's been a good podcast, and I think, I think, yeah, I think we'll get to the year end, whether it's beginning of January or otherwise. We'll, we'll get, yeah. we'll get something out there. I think so. All right, man. Well, thanks so much, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll put out something on Twitter and on Facebook, or actually probably at the end of. There's another podcast, right? So probably at the end of our year in <laughs> review, we'll also tell everyone what we're reading next, yep. um, which will probably be in March-ish uh, that we'll do that one. So, yeah, we'll keep you all posted. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, have good holidays. And, yeah, see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service, and, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.